Oops. Oh my gosh, I did the wrong thing. Uh-oh. Oh, well. No, it's okay. Oh, that, that I was that finishing up a raid that. with Marcus, and I just pulled the boss. <laughs> Oops. I'm good at this. <laughs> want, want. I oh, shit! <laughs> I no, but... Leroy Jenkins! I know it was. <laughs> I wasn't paying attention because I was talking to you guys. I looked over, I clicked a button, I'm like, oops, I just attacked. <laughs> Welcome to Preferred Enemies, the Warhammer 40k podcast that will brave winter, snow, and sickness to get to you. My name is Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. And yes, the reason we haven't been all together in about a month is because this winter has sucked. It's just been cold and snowy and cold. Yes. It... I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, I apologize for us not ha- being all together for the last episode, but between us being snowed in, which we got more snow over the weekend, thank you weather, and being various shades of terribly ill for more than one of us, um, this has yeah. just been a hell of a month to record. So, Kevin, I want to thank you in person, or at least over Skype, uh, to uh, for... <laughs> Saving our bacon by providing a, a hour and a half or so of good uh, Las Vegas open content. I was gonna say it's kind of liberating to not have to re- you know respond to other people, but yeah, that works too. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good to have everyone back because honestly, that's a lot of talking, and I don't like doing that. <laughs> but you're so good at talking. You are good at talking. Uh, but it it was it was really hard though to sit there and be like, all right, I'm gonna talk for 30 minutes and just explain what's going on. This feels super weird. Somebody interrupt me. Oh, shit, there's no one else here. <laughs> <laughs> and if our voices sound a bit weird, we are coming through Skype. Uh, we're not doing our normal sit-down record because of the weather and illness this weekend. We had to basically break this into two different recording sessions done remotely over over a couple of days. So uh, we're going to be fixing it in post, but there's only so much I can do. Uh, which, uh, hopefully, Kevin, you have a new appreciation for how much editing is involved. Yes, a little. Yeah, yeah. Especially when I'm talking. <laughs> <laughs> You're actually not that bad. It, it's not that bad. I I have just as many vocal pauses that no one gets to to hear. So, <laughs> uh, but anyway, so we've got a good month's worth. You know, when we haven't been together for like a month, and there's a large convention where they reveal a bunch of stuff. There's a lot of news and new releases to talk about. So. Uh, we'll jump right into that, and then we'll follow it up with your listener mail. And then our main topic for today, we haven't, haven't even mentioned it yet, our main topic for this uh, episode is going to be our look at the new Gene Steeler Colts Codex, which is not that new at this point, but at least we waited long enough for there to be an FAQ out. So Yeah. Uh, but uh, news and new releases, and obviously the big news is the Shadow Spear box. Uh, Vigilus and uh, the new Vigilus book that's coming, and then Big Daddy Abaddon. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, or you know, the best Primaris Lieutenant model ever. But uh, Shadow Spear, yeah. So we're finally getting new uh, Chaos Marines 
Uh, I mean, technically, we got new Chaos Marines back in the Dark Vengeance box, but now we're getting more new Chaos Marines, along with new, very sweet-looking obliterators. Yeah. And a new Demon Engine, and we saw the uh, the new Sorcerer back when the first Vigilist book came out, and the War Master's Challenge was thrown down, saying that he was going to be coming to Vigilist, and we saw Ramhead Skullfire. I'm not <laughs> sure what his actual name is, but that'll do for now. Probably I know they, they've had fake. They've re- calls him. <laughs> yeah, well, they've revealed his name in in fiction. So I mean, they've been leaking out these little. Well, not leaking, but they've been releasing these small little snippets of fiction because this because uh, Shadow Spear is not even. It's set in the Vigilist system, but not on Vigilist itself. It's like Nemendegast, I think is the. It's mm-hmm. a Forge world that's basically fallen to chaos. There in the Vigilist system. So they they're building demon engines and creating oh and greater possessed we have a uh, new new and improved possessed models and uh so they're building up this army so that they can go take vigilus and meanwhile the uh space marines have sent in the uh adeptus astartes vanguard or the primaris vanguard which are basically stealthy sneaky scout uh primaris marines uh, that are also carrying large auto guns and jump packs. So, not sure how that all goes together. What? Nothing so yeah. stealth like loud jetpacks and loud auto fire. Well, they're not even jetpacks though. They're just using like the reaver style grav shoots, and yet they're still oh, jump marines somehow. <laughs> yeah, the the auto cannon models are special. I I have to admit though, I I I like them. I know you are not a fan, but I find them rather amusing. Um, I would like them if better if they weren't on the little curvy flight stands. Yeah, no, if those were like devastators, it'd be fine. Like just yeah, them being in the flight stand and having the flight stuff just looks weird. I don't, just, I don't know. There's something about them just doesn't look right to me. I I do like their rules though that if they hit somebody in the, sh- excuse me, if they uh, if they hit somebody in the shooting phase, then that unit can't fire Overwatch. That is. That is- that is pretty cool. And then, see, that's a perfect setup for when you then launch in with your dedicated Primaris uh, Marine Assault Unit that doesn't <laughs> exist. Yeah. See, I, I, I'm thinking of them because they've, they've said that these are not going to be like Ultramarine specific. You'll be able to use them with other chapters. So yeah. I'm thinking bringing those in and then following up with Death Company. Yeah, no, there's work. definitely some good usage with them. But I'm just in of themselves, I'm slightly jealous that Howling Banshees don't have something for Eldardom. Not well, you can't, you don't get Overwatch against Howling Banshees anyway. Yeah, no, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I would love having a group that can, like, say you don't Overwatch. It's just handy. Should make it where Dark Reapers also do that because they do no, everything else. In the game, right? No, they are already good enough. They are already good enough. So, uh, but no, the, the, I mean, in all, all in all, the new models look good. Having scout style uh, Primaris is kind of cool with sniper rifles. Um, and then, uh, they've got a new librarian in there who's wearing a camo cloak and got it, like got a hood up and everything. And apparently there's new psychic powers. They, they've unboxed shadow spear at this point because, uh, there were enough leaks that were hitting that they're like, okay, we'll just kind of have to reveal it all anyway, which given the, the way it's being done, I imagine those leaks were probably coming, yeah, it's coming from inside the house type thing. 
No, it's it it looks interesting. It's got an interesting narrative behind it. I already know people who want who are because like the pre-orders they haven't gone up yet, but they like stores have already been putting up the prices for the pre-order and asking who's interested. And I I know several people are like I want two have like I want two of the Primaris halves. You know, like people they're like finding people to split boxes with. So <laughs> uh, it, it's definitely uh, uh, it's it's gonna sell. It's good to see chaos stuff. I've seen some people being very underwhelmed by the chaos rules that are in there, but we also know that chaos is getting more stuff coming soon because today they rolled out, uh, as I said earlier, Big Daddy Abaddon, the new Abaddon model, mm-hmm. which looks sweet. It's a very good reimagining of the original Abaddon model. Yeah, very much. No, and he's and he's the right size. Like I expected, he'd be a, <laughs> about Gilliman size, and it's what it seems that he's he's going to be huge. <laughs> yeah, and he should be. Um, I've read uh, Aaron Dembski Bowden's uh, uh, Black Legion and Talon of Horus, and it talks about how the fact that Abaddon in his Terminator armor is only a little shorter than Horus is. Like he's mm-hmm. he's not. And, and this is even before he gets all swole with the, the four chaos gods pumping him up. Mm. But, uh, he was still like bigger than most Marines. Like he was, he was not quite Primarch sized, but in his Terminator armor, he could do a pretty good impression of one. And, <laughs> uh, I mean, not to spoil that book too much, or th- those books. And I believe if it's, it's either Shadow Spear, Shadow, it's either Shadow Spear or, the Abaddon kit itself, one of the two, comes with like I think it may be uh, Shadow Spear comes with a sample chapter from Black Legion, which yeah, again, I think those it's are Shadow Spear. Yeah, those are fantastic books. By the way, they read really fast. It gives a very interesting look into the early days of the Black Legion. So I highly recommend them. But uh, yeah, you know he looks he looks. I mean, he's really impressive. He's got. He doesn't have a hyperdynamic pose, but he doesn't – I mean, neither does uh, Gilliman for that matter. But they mm-hmm. both have this very – you know, this pose of, like, we are ready for action. And granted, Abaddon has also got his boot down on a do- dead or dying Primaris lieutenant, at least the way they <laughs> painted him on the base. So we are getting a new Primaris lieutenant model. He just happens to be dying under Abaddon's foot. But I do like that they, they're they kind of talking about in, – in the description they gave on the Warhammer community site, they talked about how, like, to some people, Abaddon is just this absolute monster of conquest. And to some people, he is, like, the reimagining of, like, the height of the Legion. And, and, and he is something to be – uh, followed and admired. And so to support that, they gave, they put three separate heads in the kit. One has him snarling. One has him looking kind of stoic and just glaring a bit. And then one has him in like a rebreather mask. And it's like just based on what kind of feel you want Abaddon to, your Abaddon to have. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a really nice subtle touch. Yeah, definitely. A little bit better than just helmet or no helmet, which has been kind of the head <laughs> options in the past. Yeah, and and you know, helmet or no helmet is, is nice. And Abaddon never runs with helmet because you can't fit his top knot into a helmet, and he still has the <laughs> massive top knot. But yeah, it's it's. I mean, you compare it to like Gilliman. Also, the the fa- whoever sculpted the face on the new Abaddon did a fantastic job. It looks way better. I mean, the Gilliman model's not bad, but I've never really been a big fan of his face. 
And the new Abaddon just looks looks fantastic. They they really knocked it out of the park with this model, and yet it doesn't feel overdone the way a lot of Chaos stuff does. It's not skulls and I mean he has his big uh, trophy rack on the back, but that's always been kind of a Chaos Terminator thing. Although his kind of fans out behind him rather than being like the double rows, but otherwise you know he's got his fur cloak. He's got the talon of horse outstretched. He's, they've got Drachnia in there with all the screaming faces on it. But they didn't – and, like, the armor has, like, a few dents and dings and scratches in it because it's an old – it's a 10,000-year-old suit of Terminator armor that's been through the <laughs> ringer a few times. But they didn't, like, overload him with skulls and other ridiculous detail. So I, I really do like what I've seen of it so far. It is a little bit of a shame that it's a Black Legion-specific model, but then Gilliman's an Ultramarine-specific model. So, I mean, people will buy it just because it's a fantastic-looking model, and it, they want to throw one into their Chaos Army. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's definitely, he's. I mean, he's basically the, at this point, the Primarch of the Black Legion. So, I, I'm okay with him being very specific in that regard. I, I think it's, I think this is one of my, like, favorite models that's come out recently. This thing just looks amazing. And, and another thing I noticed is that he kind of is a counterpart to the the Gilliman model, because there's one detail I noticed that both kits have, and that is a torch on the base. Mm-hmm. So he really is om- almost like a dark mirror to Gilliman. And if you think about it, they're not equipped that differently either, because Gilliman has like a power fist with a like a a wrist-mounted, like, heavy bolter mm-hmm. and the Emperor's sword. And then you've got Abaddon, who's got the Talon of Horus, a wrist-mounted combi bolter, and Drachnian. So he's not, like, the power level's a little bit less, but otherwise they... And they're posed in opposite directions. So a diorama of these two facing off is going to look fantastic. Because mm-hmm. it's just going to be perfectly mirrored one against the other. I have the two images up on my screen side by side and yeah you're you're exactly right they're mirror images um they're both there's you know there's a dead ultramarine or black legionnaire on the base they're kind of you know they they're holding their sword up in one hand they've got their power fist bolter like it it's going to be really cool when you when someone builds a diorama with these cuz they they are very definitely you know, definitely mirrored yeah no it's and it's obviously an intentional design choice to do this that they are built up you know when i don't know if they necessarily had this in mind originally like when they developed gilliman but i bet when they said okay well now we're going to redo abaddon let's just basically make dark gilliman Mm -hmm. and just flip him and yet it's a simple design choice but it makes a it's a really good i think it's a really solid design choice and it's a it's a good looking model i really like it and then uh, we've got the Vigilus Ablaze, which is the second part of the Imperium Nihilus Vigilus campaign. And apparently this one is, whereas the other one had like all the different factions represented, this one is all chaos all the time. So, you know, the War Master has come to Vigilus and he's brought all the legions with him. So we're going to get to see uh, what kinds of things they have. I hope they, they've said we're going to get more specialist detachments. I hope we get some legion specific detachments. So you can have mm-hmm. an iron warriors legion, a uh, world eaters lead or world eaters formation, iron warriors found uh, formation, emperor's children formation, all, you know, anything that isn't already supported by, like, and then we might get a death guard one and a thousand sons one, but 
have all those different legions. I mean, you're talking, there's nine plus any, there's probably going to be a demonkin legion in there because they're kind of pushing demonkin in shadow spear as like, that's the, the, the mini faction that's represented in that book. So there's, you know, there's lots of possibilities coming. We have just, you know, they said over the next few weeks. So th- this is how they ended the post. Stay tuned. Over the next few weeks, we'll be guiding you through the best set of releases for Chaos Space Marines ever with regular in-depth previews right here. So apparently Chaos is getting a lot of new stuff. Well, and they were doing the, uh, the you know, daily demon engine rumor mill. And there's a bunch of stuff that they haven't shown yet. Kind of looking at some of the stuff on, on Bell and... Obviously, they specifically posted a Havoc with a uh, rotator cannon, a rotary cannon. But, uh, you know, there's there's heavy bolters. There's, uh, you know, power fists and lightning claws and trophy racks that popped up in the rumor mill that haven't been shown yet. So this is going to be a wider release than just Shadow Spear and, you know, and then Abaddon. There's going to be more coming. And I think that's great. The Chaos line, while not the oldest and worst model line definitely needed a refresh yeah oh yeah it definitely needed a refresh and my hope is after this then next you move on to aspect warriors because they desperately <laughs> need it too <laughs> well and there may be old you know, they're pretty old no they're pretty old <laughs> they are. they're know. old enough that only one of them's in plastic yeah yeah <laughs> so uh and and this is just you know they, they've talked about now that like all the codexes are out we can start s- expecting to see more campaign books that are going to bring in more focus on different factions. Cause like, obviously we haven't seen anything for Necron or Tau yet. And we've seen a little, we've seen some for craft world Eldar, but we haven't seen much else. So there's, there's a lot of room for there to be new releases and new stuff pushed. And I imagine mm-hmm. we'll find out more at Adepticon at the end of the month. We'll find out, uh, you know, more, you know, more things will get released in the summer, and then this fall there will be Nova Open. We'll see a bunch of stuff released, you know, revealed there. So there's there's a lot of opportunities for for not only the the story to get moved forward, and I am really enjoying seeing the story move forward, but also to get some of these old kits reimagined, redesigned, and rebuilt because it is long past time. Yep. Speaking of uh, reimagined, redesigned, there's been a couple of updates about Sisters as well. Ah, yes. Uh, and in fact, the most recent one is about uh, some of the uh, feedback, the, the beta rules feedback that they've been getting. And I was very happy to see some of it, especially on the Acts of Faith system, which uh, we've talked about before and my experiences with this new Acts of Faith system and the fact that, yeah, it sucks to pay a finite resource for something and then have a chance that it won't work, but you've still spent the points to make it happen. And it's one thing when like, okay, well, one of your strategy, like if it was a stratagem and it's a really powerful stratagem, so we have to put in a chance of failure. Okay, fine. That's just kind of part and parcel. But when they're all like that, it's not good. And apparently players agree. And so they are, they said they are going to rebuild the acts of faith system from the ground up. And they're going to make them more reliable and, uh, yeah, you will be as the emperor himself bestowing blessings on your unit as and when they are most needed. So what that's going to look like, we have no, you know, we don't know yet, but it's not the current system. So whatever is going to be in the uh, final Sisters Codex is not going to look at all like what we have right now. 
So that's which is that, good because I think we've determined that every other active faith system is really bad. So if they had a bad one, then this next one will be good. And what's actually released in the codex will be will actually work. Well, and the last active faith system was really good, but it had the problem that we see with Inari also is that free actions are bad. I mean, like free yes. actions are bad for the game. Yes. <laughs> uh, they're wanting to redo the exorcist and make the number of shots more reliable, which seems unnecessary to me. <laughs> But, hey, I'll take it. Yeah, don't complain about it. <laughs> no, I'm not complaining about it, but they already upgraded it to D6 damage per shot, and that made a huge difference. Uh, I don't know how they'll change the number of shots unless they do it like a 2D3 or a D3 plus 3 or something like that. But yeah. then that seems – but I almost don't want them to do that because then that seems to be overpowered compared to – like a lot of like things that just have random number of shots otherwise. I mean, maybe 2d6, but even that seems, I mean, that's way more powerful than they are right now. So, I mean, nah, I think something like 2d3 makes sense. Cause I was just kind of looking at it. And when I read that update, I was looking at, it, I'm like, okay, it's a d6 shots. And then it's d6 wounds. I'm like, yeah, that, that can be super swingy. If you roll, if you roll really well, you can do, I think up to 36 wounds, but you, or you could do, do one, do just six. Yeah, or, or one. No, you yeah, could so do one. Like, oh, that's right. Yeah, making it like two d three instead of a d six makes it more consistent, and I think that's better. Yeah, and they say they have a they have a variety of ideas, so we'll see see what what actually gets done. And then they're talking about like retooling Celestians because it doesn't they they've got the problem that a lot of like veteran style units have is that it's just in this case it's sisters but slightly better. Mm-hmm. Like with more options, like more weapon options, but they already have like two or three units that can do that as well. So, um, so they're, they're going to try to figure out some way to improve them. But I really like the fact that they asked for the feedback when chapter approved came out and now they're, they've been collecting it and they're following through. So that mm-hmm. it, it's very reassuring to see that they're, they're actually taking player feedback seriously. So I, again, I really like this new, uh, this new actively listening GW. It's a very, very neat company <laughs> to, it's so much better than it was back when we started this podcast. So, uh, uh, yeah, at strangely enough, I mean, those were all big releases, but I think that's other than like all the Gene Steeler cult stuff is out now. So that entire line is now available in plastic, ready to go. And that's, I mean, that's pretty much been it. There's actually been a lot of focus more on the uh, Age of Sigmar side. Mm-hmm. Oh, and uh, uh, something else that came out, I think we may have touched on it briefly the last time we all recorded, but I went ahead and picked up uh, a copy of Kill Team Arena. And I I like what they're trying to do with Arena. My biggest concern about it is what you get in the box is still only enough for two players. Uh, it's and the reason the reason I say that because it's like okay, well, there's four board, there's like two double sided game boards, and there's a whole book of scenarios, and it's like okay, well, maybe I could have four players going, you know, two uh, two one on one games. But the thing about um, the thing about arena is the mats all have like their four different specific scenarios or settings. Each setting has predetermined terrain, so there's no there. It, and that was one of the balance things. Like the terrain is pretty much mirrored 
so that not one side doesn't have the benefit of the other and or doesn't it isn't better than the other but they only give you enough terrain to play one of them at any given time and so for an and because they're pushing this as the this is the competitive matched play focused version of kill team where there's no height to worry about there's no you know everything is very even and fair and it's all going to come down to who plays the mission better um they at $90 a box for this mm-hmm. let's say i want to do let, let's say i'm a, i'm a decently let's say i'm a middle sized uh, event and i want to have 20 players that's not unreasonable. I mean, our, a lot of our local stores could easily do 20 kill team players and still have other things going on. Um, 20 players, well, that's 10 tables. And if this is competitive, I want everybody playing the same mission at the same time. I'm going to need 10 arena sets. That's $900. Oof. $900 to do a not that huge event. And that's my concern about it is that it's great for one off, you know, it's great for like one off competitive. I don't, it, because none of the stuff is available separately. You cannot buy the board separately. You cannot buy the terrain separately. It's, it's very, very difficult. And even the match play missions themselves are tied to, there's like so many se- missions in the book, but they're tied to particular boards, like, this is this mission is played on the catacombs board. This mission is played on the uh, uh, like the abandoned bunker board. That's great, but again, you still only so like if those aren't on the other side of each other, yeah, you could have two of those out, but you can't buy the terrain. And the terrain is just barrels and pipes and things like that, but and in crates. But they're it's not even just random. It's like this barrel is three small barrels with another or three barrels with another barrel stacked on top. This crate is a standalone crate. These crates are stacked up this way and they have to be done that way. So mm-hmm. you can't get that train out outside. I, it's like, it's a great idea, but I think it's going to be way too expensive for most people to do. Whereas they can get kill team sized mats from like any one of these, you know, rubber backed, mat makers and then put on their normal 40k terrain and have a have kill team and be able to do way more kill team tables but then you can't use these missions because they're specific like the they i think and there's no there's no other models it's not like uh, arena doesn't come with like two kill teams to face off against each other it's 90 bucks for some boards terrain and a book and not even a thick book so i don't like the price point Maybe it'll come down. I doubt it because I've never seen them do price drops before. But it <laughs> seems like it's out of it's out of reach for most tournament organizers because for nine hundred bucks we can. There's a lot more forty k terrain that we can buy that we can use for any kind of table, not just kill team. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So I have my I have my questions about about how how effective a product that is, which is a shame because it's like they're really trying and the the book is otherwise it's really good about like talking about how how to run an event, how to deal with like the th- kinds of things that come up during an event. They even like they talk about cheating, they talk about people running late, they talk about time limits. So it's like they they cover a lot of the stuff. So if you have never run a tournament or never been to a tournament, it's a kind of a nice primer on what to expect and what to do. It's just that it's in a $90 box. 
But yeah, that's a little disappointing. Yeah, yeah. It, I had my hopes up. I'm glad I, I – but I, I don't think I would buy – I, w- I won't buy more than one. And I, I, I don't even really think I would need the one at this point. I, I mean, I really, I mean, I've got it now, mm-hmm. but I, I kind of like, it's one of those purchases where like, man, if I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have bothered. So, ah, and from that cheery note, let's switch over to listener <laughs> mail. Trust me, they, they get better. Uh, but, uh, all these letters are written by you, the listeners. And, uh, at the end of the segment, we'll tell you how you can get, uh, your letter read on the air. And uh, I'm terrible at names. We've established this through many episodes, so uh, I will do my best. So our first one is from Clint Kopaniaz. I hope I'm saying that right. And uh, he says, so I was wondering if there's any way of discounting two-man war gear drones. I've bought as up or I've bought as upgrades for my battle suits from being such easy points for my opponent. Having all these two-man units, because they immediately become a separate unit upon deployment, leaves me throwing points out the window. The codex says they count as zero power level after you deploy them, but I can't think of why that is relevant information. Is there something I'm missing in the rules, or are they just a stupid liability? Save uh, your protocols. Say, well, they're yeah, they're, they're, no, they're there for save your yeah. protocols. They're, they're actually really decent. Yeah. Uh, the, they're the reason there they to die. <laughs> yeah. And the reason they mention like, zero power level is there have been variants of kill point... Missions where you score based on the number of power, like what is the power level of the unit you just destroyed? Well, in this case, they'd be zero. They they don't add anything. Yeah. It also keeps the weird scenario of like, oh, I I can I want to put this guy in deep strike, but I don't have the power level to keep his you know dro- uh, drones with him and stuff like that. So I, I think just for list building, and there there's zero points just because it's like I don't worry about them. They do become. They do die quickly, but that's their point. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really is. Uh, now they they do generally cost like a power level to take. So yeah, if you take two tac like you take tactical drones on like crisis suits or uh, like strike squads, things like that, they they usually cost a power level for you know if you're accompanied by any drones, and then yeah, they split off. So yeah, you set them up on the on the board, and they're con- considered a separate unit, and that's fine. They you know, but are they a liability? Well, yeah, they're in ki- in a kill point mission. Yeah, they do become another unit. That's just a thing that happens, and you have to be aware of that. Um, usually, I see people taking standalone squads of te- tactical drones because you can fit more than two in a squad. So mm-hmm. you can get like four, six. You know, it's like you can max out on usually shield drones, occasionally gun drones. Uh, but yeah, that's why they're there. They're there for savior protocols. They're basically there to keep you, you keep your infantry and battle suits alive. And so it's a chance to take more of them than you could just like than your number of available force org slots would allow. All right, next up, Pathfinder Captain. We have another Tau question. He says, hello, friendlies. I've been thinking of getting into Tau after nearly two decades of loyal guard service. It's been about two years since I was in in a tournament, so I'm not really familiar with the meta. However, I don't want the typical Tau Gundam army. What would you recommend? I mean, it depends on what you consider typical Tau Gundam, because a lot of Tau armies aren't running that many suits these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, you usually see like, uh, you'll see a riptide or two just because they're very good. Um, you might see one or two cold star commanders. Uh, you don't, you don't see the quad fusion as much. I'm seeing a lot of like quad cyclic ion blasters, mm-hmm. uh, which is fun because, uh, those bits are like one per kit. So that it's always fun to try to track down the extra bits. 
but then they also see a lot. I see a lot of strike squads, so like your stock fire warriors, uh, like a lot of them. And yep. then, like like six, eight, ten. Like I've seen people running brigades worth of just them, and then usually backed up with uh, some cadre fire blades, sniper drone or fire or sniper drones, firesight marksmen, and then yeah, and just overwhelming things with lots of firepower. Usually running as the tau uh, under tau sept to get Overwatch on fives and sixes, and access to the focus fire stratagem. I mean that's. You can go troop heavy. It'll almost feel like playing guard, except with yeah. battle suits instead of tanks. Yeah, no, I mean it, it, that's kind of yeah. If you're not wanting to go with the the suits, you kind of are just playing guard. You're gonna, you know, your your advantages over guard are that you're gonna have slightly better armor saves. You're gonna have a better gun, but you shoot just as effectively with it, and you don't have things like orders to really make the shooting like. To kind of force multiply the shooting like you do uh, in a guard army, although with fire blades and ethereals, you do have some ability to kind of do force multipliers. But yeah, I mean, you can take a lot of troops and build a very guard-like tower army and be very effective with it. Yeah, it really can. And then you also have uh, your marker light support, which uh, the form I usually see that in is either on the firesight marksmen, who are fantastic because they have a like three up ballistic skill with marker lights. The cadre fire blades have two up ballistic skill and fire and can take marker lights. So you that like you'll see those a lot. You'll even see like the sergeants in the very or I guess the chasseurs, the the sergeant equivalent in the fire warrior squads, often taking uh, marker lights as well. So having them scattered throughout your army rather than like one or two dedicated units also means that you can't lose all your marker light support from losing just one unit. Mm-hmm. Um, also. Uh, we just mentioned drones, uh, shield packs of shield drones to protect your usually your your battle suits. Uh, you can cause a lot of havoc from people just trying to shoot your Riptide and having to chew through, you know, a bunch of of shield drones instead. Who take mortal wounds? You know, when Savior Protocols kicks in on a two up, the drone takes a mortal wound, and then the shield generators have a five up, uh, five up against mortal wounds. So. You can withstand a lot of damage that way. And plus, you've got things you can add on to the suits for, uh, do you want to be better against shooting flyers? Do you want to be uh, better? Do you want to be able to shoot against uh, people that uh, deep strike or come in from reserves? You've got a lot of options there. Do you just want to have a better AP? Do you want to have, uh, do you want to be able to move and fire without penalty? Uh, just whatever suit upgrades you want to take. Uh, also, I really like stealth suits. They're very, very effective because they also have, always have a flat minus one to be hit by anything in any phase. So you can you can get away with running a minimum number of suits and not feeling too Gundam-y by leaning heavily into uh, strike squads. And strike squads are really good. And by taking a couple of either a couple of battalions or brigades worth even you can get a lot of command points which then you need for your stratagems because tau is a an army that can burn through command points on stratagems very quickly Mm -hmm. so that that's kind of if you don't want to do typical i mean you're going to have suits because it's tau and that's kind of one of their things but you can like yeah you can basically play a a not too unlike guard style army with just doing tau gunline 
All right, next up is from Dennis Thomas. Dennis writes, Hello again. I have another question for you, or more clarification. If a transport attacks in the charge phase and is destroyed in Overwatch, can the unit inside disembark and then declare a charge themselves? Okay, so let's talk about what happens when you're embarked in a transport and it's destroyed. This is on page 183 of your big rule book, uh, or if you have them on the smaller battle primers, it's on the sidebar for the fight phase and morale phase section under transports. Uh, so if a transport is destroyed, any units embarked upon it, embarked within it immediately disembark before the transport model is removed, but you must then roll one die for each model you set up on the battlefield for each roll of one, a model that disembarked your choice is slain. Um, they have to be set up within three inches of the transport and not within any inch of any, not within an inch of any enemy models. So, it's going to be based off of where the transport was when it was destroyed, and this is going to happen before it made its charge move. So the vehicle itself would have to have been within 12 inches anyway to even make the the charge. So you could get them up within within nine, theoretically. Could be close, depending on, where obviously, where the vehicle was. Looking at the charge phase, though, you don't select any, you don't select like all your chargers up front. You select one unit to charge and then you resolve its charge. You know, like, I'm going to charge it. Opponent gets to overwatch it. Then I roll the charge distance. And then if I'm close enough, I move it. And then you go to the next one. So if the first one you picked is the transport and the transport gets popped in overwatch, then when it comes time to pick the second unit, it could be the unit that was embarked. And I haven't found anything in the FAQs or commentary or anything that would contradict that yeah and then just to kind of add you know to that point under you know back under the embark section if a transport is destroyed any unit embarked within it immediately disembark see below and then down below units that disembark can act normally you know and then move shoot charge fight etc during the remainder of the turn so yeah i think it's i think you would be able to yeah yeah so it doesn't matter why you disembarked once you disembarked for the rest of the turn, you can act normally. And like I said, because you choose your chargers and resolve them all one at a time, it doesn't matter that it wasn't on the board at the beginning of the charge phase. It just matters that it was a legal choice at the time you picked a charger. So it should be fine. All right. Next up is from Tom Crisp. Tom writes, greetings again, preferred enemies. Having listened to your latest episode reviewing Urban Conquest, I've been thinking about a combined kill team, 40k, Adeptus Titanicus campaign using the map included in Conquest. Any suggestions for working the Titanicus into it? I have some ideas, but I wanted to see if you guys had anything inspired. I also have the Titan Death book for Titanicus, and I'm planning to use most of the campaign rules as part of this overall campaign. Keep up the good work, Tom. Uh, none of us have played Titanicus. I have the rule book. I've looked through it, but I have not played Titanicus. Um, my cons- my immediate concern, besides the fact that it's technically set in the Horus Heresy, but I mean you can work around that because they have Titans anytime, um, is the fact that you'd be limited to a Imperium versus Chaos campaign if you if one of your players is playing Orcs or Eldar or anything else. Uh, yeah, you they won't have Titans to use against it. But if you're doing an Imperium versus Chaos or Imperium versus Imperium for some reason, I would say you could just work it in as a you know, like choose when you go into a you know when you play your games for that that session for that round. Decide like okay, we can you know is it 
we play a game of Kill Team, a game of regular 40K, and a game of Titanicus, or maybe we can do a Kill Team and 40K or Titanicus. I would have the ti- the Titanicus games be worth a few more points, like glory points, which just determine order that the, you know, like whether you get higher initiative or not when it comes to the non-combat phase of the game. But, that, I mean, that's pretty much what I would do and just do a Titanicus board in a city section if you're fighting over a particularly special zone uh, try to see if you can match the rules for that to the like kind of find an analog for some of those in the titanicus rules or apply a a tweak that way but yeah without knowing more about titanicus i don't know if i could give you any really solid ideas more than that i think it's a neat concept though to kind of have you know the big the campaign almost almost kind of like scale down where you start with like a big titan- titanicus battle and then you go down to a regular 40k game and eventually gets all the way down to just a you know a kill team skirmish i think there are outside of the urban conquest rules i think there's some cool narrative stuff you can do with that and you can have it you know kind of just order it in a, like okay we have xyz MacGuffin, we have to pick up on this planet here's the first wave of the titans hitting and and this battle and then Here's the infantry units following in behind, and then here is the skirmish over the MacGuffin at the end with the kill team stuff. So I do like that I can kind of scale like that. Um, so I, I think there's some cool concepts there. I, I don't have, like you said, I don't have a lot of like rules detail on how to make it work, but I think it's a cool concept. Yeah, or you could even do it flip the other way and do like start with small squad action, just then escalates to. Mm-hmm. Brigade, like, you know, company level action, which then, or, you know, brigade versus, you know, brigade or battalion versus battalion action, which then escalates up to maybe the last round of the, uh, of your campaign is Titan versus Titan battles. And, yeah. you know, and the thing, and you could easily set this, you know, again, as I said, uh, uh, Adeptus Titanicus is set during the Horus Heresy. With the exception of some of the strategic asset cards that you uh, buy between rounds, which add some nice perks, and some of them would, would work with this and some of them wouldn't work with this edition, there's no reason why you couldn't staple uh, a, the, uh, a dep- or a, the the Urban Conquest, like the map-based portion of it. There's no reason why you couldn't use the Horse Heresy rule set with that. Mm-hmm. So you could do a Horse Heresy, like you could do fighting through uh the ruins of Istvan 3 like loyalists versus um you know loyalists versus uh traitors uh you know it's like the the virus bombing and firestorm are over and now the loyalists have come out of the bunkers and the uh traitors have to go are trying to clear them out of the city and you know there were titans being used in you know like legio mortis and stuff like that were being used in those battles, so there's no reason why you couldn't do a uh, Titan campaign that way too. So, or like work that into it and have that as part of your urban conquest. So, I, it it would be a really neat, uh, really neat for any sort of like narrative campaign to work that in. So, yeah, if you have the the campaign rule, and I know Titan Death has apparently a, a hex based campaign system that you know for doing map based campaigns. So you could work that in, like when you get to a city, depending on how long a, a venture you want to make this. They talk in the book about working in, um, 
like Planet Strike and Cities of Death and Stronghold Assault and all those into a single uh, Urban Conquest campaign, you could mix Titan Death and into this as well. And just like you could run a year long, easily a year long <laughs> campaign of all these various systems interacting. And then wh- how far you take it is just it's up to your imagination. Where do you want to go with it? I would say, uh, you know, keep sending us updates as you go through this, because I'd love to hear about, you know, how this works for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that's that's actually something else that they announced was that the Grandmaster box um, for Adeptus Titanicus was going to be coming again. And uh, I don't need that kind of temptation in my life. <laughs> but all those... Well, you've t- got Shadow Titan- Spirit to take up all your money for now. I know. Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) I am so glad that I've got multiple things to take away my money to stop me from spending the other things I could be spending my money on. (laughs) Dear GW, if you would like to send us a free copy of the Grandmasters. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yes, I would like one, but don't, don't, I don't need that. Cause now they've, they've got like all the weapon arms and all the, like they've got the, all the other Titans that are, that are now supported in the game. And I, I don't need that level of temptation. I can barely get through the stuff I have right now. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, but yeah, Tom, uh, let us know how your, uh, how you end up working it in. And uh, yeah, we definitely like to hear more about your campaign. All right. Next one is from Sigmarius, who I believe has written to us before. Sigmarius writes, hello, P frenemies. In the most recent episode, y'all had a question from a listener on how to keep up with all the rules without having to carry 40,000 books. And I thought my method might help. To the best of my knowledge, and I am not a lawyer, U.S. copyright law allows the photocopying of books for personal use. If you aren't sharing your copies and you own the books, that seems to fall right into personal use to me. I took my core book and made a copy of the rules. I did the same thing with the relevant army rules and data sheets for my units and any relevant stuff from chapter approved. When FAQs come out, I go through with a red fine point sharpie and write in the changes. And then I have a hard copy of the FAQ documents. I put all this in a three-ring binder that's color-coded for my army. That way I have all the relevant rules without the excess stuff I don't need for a game. Hope that helps keep up the good work. Uh, yeah, that's a fantastic idea. Again, if you're not distributing this and you're basically photocopying uh, these, for, you're allowed to format shift your books a bit. And especially if you're just cut, taking the relevant pieces that you need, uh, that's perfectly fine. And that is a way to not have to lug around. like... Let's say you're using one of the specialist attachments from Vigilus. Well, each one of those takes up about a page. You don't need the rest of the book and like the first half to two thirds of it that is all fluff. If you just need the rules available for your, the army that you're using, you don't need all the fluff and color pl- plate sections from your codex. If, you know, for, especially if it's just like the data sheets you need for the particular army you brought. That is a totally valid way to do it. And uh, and I've heard of people like taking their codexes and getting them like take the hardcover off and spiral bind it for me, things like that. Uh, a lot of print shops will do that as well. But yeah, this is a, this is perfectly fine. And then uh, we're no strangers to writing in our own codexes. Uh, Richard, I know you did that with your Grey Knights codex when Chapter Approved came out. Yes, changed all the points, costs, so that I knew what they were without having to reference something else. Yeah, so that is definitely uh, a thing you can do. And this way you can do it with – you can do it on photocopies. And then if the points values change in the next chapter approved, you just re-photocopy the points pages and rewrite your new numbers. So, yeah. yeah although, no, although I think I, I may copy that for uh, 
that technique for my Tyranids Codex because I have the Collector's Tyranids Codex. And I don't yeah, you don't want to write me that. that. Yeah, not so much. So, yeah, no, Simiars, this is a fantastic idea. And yeah, if you, uh, if you are a listener and who you are concerned about having to carry around uh, five or six different books to cover your army, uh, this is a great uh, solution. And most tournaments, they do request that you have a a copy of the rules for your army on hand. If you have it right there in a three ring binder color coded for what you need and can easily flip to it, this is, this is a much lighter solution for, for carrying around. All right. Next one's from Troy Lanning. Troy writes, hello, I just finished the part two of the Knights Codex review. And all I can say is damn it all for making me want to go spend $600 to get new models as if I need more with the backlog. A few questions here for the crew. One, what 3D printer do you use? Two, can you do a review of the Renegade Knights mini codex? And three, what features do you all require from a list building tool? What features are nice to have? Thanks, Troy. Uh, well, Kevin is the only one who actually has a 3D printer, so I will let him field that first part. Yeah, so I actually have two different 3D printers, although literally when I came home today, uh, I had to disassemble one because I had a clog in it, nine hours of print globbed up around the uh, nozzle, and I had to hammer away with it, the chisel and stuff. Um, so that was what I was doing immediately before recording. Um, but I have two printers. I have an Ender, uh, a Creality Ender 3 and a Creality CR10. The Ender 3 is about $200 or a little bit over off of Amazon. And the uh, CR10 is pr- is closer to 300 350 Every once in a while they do flash sales on Amazon that's, uh, where they're a little bit cheaper. Um, the nice thing with both of those is that like Creality basically outsources like the actual manufacture of it. So it's like, here's the system, here's the specs, and then other companies actually manufacture it. So it is a little bit, they're a little bit cheaper than some of the other printers. Um, the thing I do like about them as well, even though they're a little bit more affordable, they're all metal. Like it's, it, it is, both of these are um, assemble kits. So you basically get the pieces and you have to follow the instructions to put it together, which takes about 45 minutes to an hour and a half, depending on how, you know, how, how, how fast you work on it. But there's plenty of videos online to do the assembly and how to set everything up and how to tinker with it, how to dial in the settings. Uh, but the one thing I really like about them is there's no 3d printed parts on these machines. They're fully aluminum and metal. Um, there are some of the other like cheaper, uh, more discounted 3D printers that you can get that have 3D printed parts on them, and those wear out and break over time. So with this, these both being uh, fully aluminum frames, they're going to last a lot longer. The other thing I would, the one thing I would definitely say is look for one that has um, like a dual gantry on it because both the Creality, uh, both the Ender 3 and the CR10 have two posts that the arm goes up and down on. There are some other 3D printers like the Ender 2, I believe, that just have one post. And the problem with those is the arm can get out of alignment very easily. And then you start getting misshapen prints and things not working correctly. So I would definitely recommend like the, the Ender 3 is a good starting uh, a good starting one. And it's relatively cheap. And that's a good way to not spend the $600 on night models. You just buy a 3D printer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's see. And then, uh, can you do a review of the Renegade Knights mini codex? Yes. Okay. Going on to th- number three. <laughs> what? He well, just asked if well, we it, could. I didn't say well, we I mean, were going well, to do one now. 
I will do my review of the. I will do a mini review of the uh, Renegade Knight mini decks right now. Everything in the that we said in the Knight Codex, minus all the good stratagems and all the good house rules. Yeah, pretty much. And and you do have the ability to take dual Avenger Gatling cannons on your on a knight. Which but you that's probably really it, yeah. Which you will if you're going to yeah. do Renegade, you will. Uh, the it it's functionally the same army as the Imperial Knights. The thing that's interesting about it, and it's actually something I've been kind of working on, is toying around an idea of doing a uh, Renegade Knight army, mostly because I've looked at the uh, final ITC standings for 2018, and there's not many Renegade Knight players, so I actually have a decent chance of like maybe finishing. <laughs> if, if I can get it together and like play in events, I might have a chance of winning, You know, being in the top-ish so area for that. So what you're saying is there's a chance. There's a chance. The cool thing, though, with the, with the Renegade Knights is you do have a lot of other chaos things that pair with it really nicely. On the Imperium side, you typically get Guard and you typically get Admech. But on the chaos side, you can pair it with Demons. You can pair it with other, you know, Chaos Marines. There's, you know, there's Cultists. You can do Cultists. You can do Demons. I think you do actually have a, a nice wider variety to pair with the, the the renegade knights than you do on the imperium side the downside is you, you lose all literally all of the good house rules and all of the good stratagems and relics now one thing to keep in mind is that uh if you have a and this actually came up a couple times at lvo if you ha- take a single knight in a super heavy auxiliary detachment you do not get the household tradition rule mm-hmm so if you're taking one Knight Castellan, for example, the only thing – you will get access to the stratagems, but you don't get access to the actual household tradition benefit. So at that point, running a Renegade isn't that different. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, oh, and while we're at it uh, in the uh, we can't actually read department, uh, we did have a listener correct us. Unfortunately, I don't have his name in front of me. Uh, we got House Terranus's household tradition backwards. We had said that uh, you got to uh, basically at a six-up feel-no-pain on mortal wounds. It's the opposite. It is a six-up feel-no-pain on non-mortal wounds, hmm. which is uh, – yeah, so Wait, roll a dice each time a model with this household tradition loses a wound unless that wound – unless that wound was lost as the result of a mortal wound. On a six, the wound counted – you know, the wound being rolled for is not lost. So it's six up feeling of pain against pretty much everything but psychic powers. So that's actually way better than what we originally reviewed. I'm just going to say it was your fault. Hey, no, I, I, I'm the one who had the book open right in front of me and I can't read. So despite the fact that I'm reading a listener mail, I'm doing this all phonetically. So just so you know, which is why I can't get names right. This all this all makes sense. Yeah. All right. And then the third question is, uh, what features do you all require from a list building tool? What features are nice to have? The main feature that is required from a list building tool is that it is up the the data it uses is correct and updated mm-hmm. regularly. That yes. is the the biggest thing. Everything else on top of that is pretty much gravy. If it's because, for example, for the longest time. I loved Army Builder. And Army <laughs> Builder has the best output. It is much easier to read. Um, it's, it's laid out nicely. It prints nicely. It paginates nicely. Uh, but sometime around 7th edition, they stopped updating the files because 
the thing is, like, okay, so Army Builders built is made by a company, uh, Wolflayer. They don't maintain the data files. They just maintain the system that can read those data files. Well, the team that was maintaining the data files, from what I understand, uh, basically was reduced to one person after a number of the people decided they didn't like 7th edition, burned out, and quit updating them. So for the longest times, the 7th edition files got stale. And then when we switched over to 8th edition, there was nobody to update them for 8th edition. Now, they're, they've been getting updated slowly. They're still not up to date. And the way army building is handled in 8th edition doesn't play quite as well with the way army builder is set up. So while I love the output from army builder because the data isn't there, I can't really use it. So I use Battlescribe now. The Battlescribe, the team that is updating those rules, they do multiple updates. They anytime like a new codex comes out, an FAQ, anything that updates point values or changes how an army is uh, put together or introduces a new new army specific detachment rule or something like that, they update the data files, which can sometimes mean your older list, your older roster files don't work now because they reference material that is has been altered but the upshot is the data is always correct it's always and if it's not correct they fix it very quickly and so the data is all there i hate the output from battlescribe and there is no way to make that outfit really attractive but it's yeah. there it's comprehensive you can have it show as much of the rules or as little of the rules as you want uh, but again, what, those what, features. What platform do you want it on? It's yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, do you want to have it on? An, you want it on an Android phone? Do you want it on your iPhone? Do you want it on your PC, your Mac, your Linux box? Battlescribe works on everything. It's all using the same data. Uh, you can share the files generally between them. Uh, so that, I mean, the interoperability is great. Those are great, nice to haves. Um, good output is a very nice to have, which again, I don't think Battlescribe really has. And I think that's part of it's a Java app on the PC. It doesn't really spit things out in a paginated format, which is a shame, but it is what it is. But the most important, the absolute you have to have is the data has got to be good. Because if the data is bad, uh, there have been people whose army lists have been found to be illegal because they were using Battlescribe to build them and didn't check them uh -huh. against their codexes. Yep. And it's, yep. And sometimes it's just a matter of, oh, hey, we didn't realize that these two things interacted or, oh, that was a typo or uh, we didn't get that into this most recent release, but we'll have it in the next data pack. And, and not that I've heard of anybody doing this. It's those files are basically just HTML files. It is super easy if you wanted to, to go in and edit those files in Battlescribe. So I don't know that anybody has done this. I haven't heard of people doing, you know, cheating this way but you could go in and like oh no this point's totally fine so it, it's it, it's one of those where like the files being updated quickly is very nice but the files also being kind of open source and editable means that there's a lot of other thing you know other risks with it as well yeah yeah uh, and so another thing is that you have to have uh, the proper amount of granularity in how you can modify units and how you, how you can build them, mm -hmm. uh, which is one of the reasons why the uh, GW uh, combat roster tool that they came out with, uh, what, about a year ago at this point, um, was not good. 
because it it allowed you to pick units and increase them by like power level blocks but you could not set their you could not build anything like if the unit went from like your first 5 costs 5 pl and then you can ha- go up to 10 for another 5 pl well you couldn't you it was either 5 or 10 you couldn't go 6 and you couldn't pick who was the sergeant and what war gear he had. And so it's like, okay, yeah, well, the data's there because GW, uh, you know, it's GW. They've got access to all the data, but the interface didn't, it didn't allow you to manage the data well. And it didn't give you the data you really needed. So that was also a no-go. And hopefully they will get around to fixing that one day. I have, I honestly haven't looked at combat roster since then. So. I have it pulled up right now. They haven't made any changes to it. Okay, well, that's sad. <laughs> that, and it's really sad because the War Scroll Builder that they have for um, for Age of Sigmar, which was originally a fan-based product, and, you know, it was, it was just a fan website, and GW liked it so much they bought the rights to it and got the guy to keep it maintained. Um, it has more granularity and more options, even though Age of Sigmar doesn't really need it. Yeah. I mean, it well, can use it, but it doesn't need it. Like, I'm looking at it right now, and I'm just pulling up Chaos Cultus as a unit. You have the power level for, you know, a champion and nine cultists. If I hit add, it adds ten cultists to the unit and jacks the power level up, and it gives me no options for war gear or anything like that. So I can't specify whether I'm going to have them with rifles or close combat weapons or if I only want to have 13 in the unit instead of 20. So, yeah, it's not good. No, it's not. And uh, But it does have the, the one benefit that Combat Raster has over all these other tools is very clear legality. And that is something that doesn't often get discussed much with... Uh, with uh, army list builders is one of the reasons that like Wolf Lair doesn't maintain the files themselves uh, for like the 40 K data files for army builder is plausible deniability. Uh, basically yeah. if GW decides one day, because technically by re reprinting their rules uh, in a different source, it's technically copyright violation. So uh, what what the groups like Battlescribe are doing, technically it may – it's on shaky legal ground at best. And so mm-hmm. companies that provide these products tend to not – you know, they tend to basically say, well, we support multiple rule systems. And if somebody wants to try to port the rules for a particular game into our system and make a data, a data file that uh, can be accessed, well – that's what they're doing. We're not part of that. So, uh, yeah, that's why, like, a lot of these sites, you know, the, the data files are on a third-party site. Maybe it's on a GitHub repository or something where it can be maintained and, and managed completely separate from the, you know, Battlescribe or Army Builder or whatever tool. Uh, some of them are like, what, Quartermaster, where you have to plug in all the Army data yourself, and then you can play around mm-hmm. with it. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's another way to kind of get around that. It's like, hey, if you're plugging in data, your own data from your own books and not giving it to anybody, well, that's, that's perfectly legal. We're just giving you a tool to archive it. Uh, so that's the one benefit that the GW tool has. It's not useful in any other fashion, unfortunately. But hopefully one day, you know, we'll get a really solid partnership between GW and one of the army list 
builders the way we they have for War Scroll Builder, and we'll get a good uh, official army builder that can be updated whenever a new codex comes out. That would be fantastic. Until then, yeah, yeah Battle Scribe is probably the best bet just because it's the one that has the most active community maintaining that data, and that is the key. All right, next up is from Tony Kajawa. Tony writes, Dear PE, with the Depticon right around the corner, I've decided I want to purchase an airbrush down there. Any suggestions on companies or brands? I know I want a gravity-fed brush, and that's about as far as my knowledge goes. I've earmarked $400. Is that enough for a quiet quality compressor and a brush? I live in northeast Wisconsin, half an hour away from Green Bay, so the weather is a constant hassle with constant crazy weather. Would it be important to get a moisture trap? Thank you for any input. Um, 400 bucks will get you a very nice airbrush and a pretty decent compressor. Um, yes. With money left over for paint. Because honestly, for a compressor, if you get uh, a like one of the not terribly expensive uh, air, uh, airbrush compressors you can find on, uh, on Amazon that has a tank attached to it, you can mm-hmm. usually get those for $100 to $150, maybe less if you go a bit cheaper. Um, once that tank is filled, it runs pretty quietly from what I understand. I need to get yeah, one myself. Yeah, it does. I, I have one. It, it's great. Uh, yeah, it's about it's about a hundred bucks. It's uh, so it's the uh, it's the master airbrush compressor, like dual compressor with a tank. It's a hundred dollars right now on Amazon. And yeah, it, it's it's quiet with it having an extra tank. You don't necessarily need the moisture trap, although if you think it's a problem, moisture traps are pretty cheap. And it's um, better to have the moisture trap and not need mm-hmm. it than need it and not have it. Absolutely. But for a hundred bucks, you can get a really nice uh, master, you know, master airbrush compressor. So yeah, a hundred bucks will get you a pretty, a pretty good compressor. Uh, again, with a tank, which will keep it nice and quiet past the initial, inf- uh, the initial compression period. And yeah, the, then with a moisture trap, which if you have weird weather, I would definitely recommend a moisture trap because it'll help keep your paint from being quite so sputtery or, sp- uh, you know, getting weird spl- uh, splatter and sputter. Um, as far as airbrushes, I'm sure Badger is going to have a, a presence there. Uh, Badger has really solid airbrushes. Um, they, they come to most of the conventions cause like Badger usually has a booth at Renegade open. Um, and I know they've been, they've had, uh, people selling airbrushes at other large, large, uh, conventions. So I know they'll, I'm almost positive they'd have a presence at Adepticon. Um, I have a Badger Renegade Chrome, which I really like. Uh, there's also the Badger Sotar 2020 is a really popular option for kind of high end stuff. All of those are going to run you anywhere from 130 to 200 dollars. So again, if you're spending 100 bucks on a compressor and 150 to 200 on a, an airbrush, and then you get the, uh, I mean, you're going to need some, you're going to need hoses and things like that. Figure another 50 bucks or so. You're probably still going to have 50 bucks, 50 to 100 bucks left, depending on what you spend uh, to get like airbrush paints and things like because your airbrush is no good if you have nothing to put through it. But yeah, $400, you're going to get a good setup and have money left over. I think $400 is absolutely fine. 
All right, next up is from Red Rabbit. Red Rabbit writes, Dear Preferred Sea Anemones. I love how creative these get. Uh, Red Rabbit here again, blowing up your inbox. Thanks for the, Thank you for the painting advice. Your wisdom of 40K is inspired and surpassed only by the humidity levels here in East Texas. That is a case where you would definitely need a moisture trap, would be in East mm-hmm. Texas. Anyway, I have one more real quick set of questions, and then I'll quit bugging y'all. I am currently in the process of expanding my AdMech collection and get and give my Astro Militarum army a break. Yes, I said Astro Militarum. When I came into 40K, that's what they were called. And it occurred to me, the AdMech is an organization in the 40K lore that manufactures tech for billions of worlds populated by billions of people each and has entire planetary systems that are essentially giant factories on scales that we couldn't even imagine by today's standards, not to mention that their entire religion is based around machines. And yet... The army has no real vehicles to speak of, aside from the dune crawler and the chicken walkers. What's up with that? I know that in the lore they have giant ships, but what's the logic behind their lack of vehicles in the 40k tabletop game? And before I go, as someone who plays Astro Militarum, I don't think that y'all hate Guard. The topics brought up in those episodes that were brought up in the iTunes review were legitimate game balance issues that needed to be fixed. They just both happened to involve Guard. Although when the commissars got nerfed, they dropped from $30 to 10 on most sites, and I was finally able to get one. So look on the bright side. Now they're not overpowered and cheaper to purchase. Just a thought. Anyways, you guys are awesome. Never stop what y'all do. Sincerely, Red Rabbit. Well, thank you, Red. Uh, so as far as why the AdMech doesn't have uh, a lot of tracked vehicles or transports, it is uh, a little bit of a weakness in the the army setup. If I remember right, and unfortunately, I don't have, I've not replaced my Adeptus Mechanicus uh, Codex since I gave it away with the Adeptus Mechanicus army we did at last year's Midwest Conquest. Uh, but uh, the Mechanicus, uh, they tend to do things like they drop the Skatari. Uh, like when the Skatari come down from the lander ships, they don't drop them right into the combat zone. They drop them well far away from the combat zone and they just walk. They just, they just slowly hoof it across the planet. And that's one of the, and one of the reasons they can do that is because they've replaced their, all the, the nasty fleshy bits that might get worn down by walking. It's usually starting with the legs, which is if you look at any of the Skatari models, uh, their pants like kind of end at the knee and then it's robot leg after that. They've ba- that's like one of the first upgrades they do to a Skatari is take their legs off at the knees and give them robot legs because then they can just walk and walk and walk and walk and they will just implacably walk to where they're going because they can re- they their bionics make them resilient enough to do that and they are they walk in large enough numbers that when they show up they just shoot things. Uh, they've got the dune crawlers that walk with them. They've got their dragoons and the the iron striders that can run ahead. But everything else is just they foot slog. It's their style of combat. Now they have they have had tracked vehicles in the past, and there's no reason why they couldn't really have them. And obviously, like Catafrons, uh, Catafron servitors have tracks instead of legs. Uh, but everybody else is just foot slogging and they don't, yeah, they don't have any deep strike. They don't have any flyers. They don't have any transports. They just walk. Although I think now they do have the termite assault drills. So they do have v- they do have transports now that can basically pop up from, uh, from underneath. So they kind of deep strike that way. And then in the age or in the, uh, horse heresy era, they had like some special tanks and they have, Again, more robots that just walk. Knights just walk. 
But yeah, the uh, the termite drills are really just there to pop up so that they can walk out. So yeah, they just walk. They just they just walk everywhere. All right. Uh, next up is from Austin Martin. Austin writes, and this this is an interesting set of rules questions. Uh, okay, guys, I've written in before, but I have two questions for you this time. I've also sent them to GW's FAQ email, so we'll see if they get addressed in the March FAQ. Number one, Webway Gate. First of all, does placing things in Webway Strike actually make them count as reinforcements? There's not really anything that indicates that it does, but I assume the, the rule from the big FAQ2, Tactical Reserves, that they fall the, under this use case. So, Webway Strike, unfortunately, he provided... Uh, I props to Austin for providing screenshots uh, for uh, and scans of like all the relevant rules. So we had all the materials in one place. It was very nice. Uh, the Webway Strike for the Webway Gate writes: after, after you set up this model, any Eldari units you have not yet set up during deployment, other than fortifications, can be set up in a Webway Spar rather than being set up on the battlefield. One unit in a Webway Spar can emerge from each friendly Webway Gate at the end of each of your movement phases. Set them up wholly within three inches of the webway gate and more than nine inches away from any enemy models. If all friendly webway gates have been destroyed, any units that have not yet arrived from a webway spar are considered to be slain. So that that's the rule. And yes, I would say they would count as reinforcements, as in they weren't on the table, they're now on the table, they're reinforcements. Right, and, yep. and I agree with that one. And, and it just, the webway gate kind of gives any of your units the ability to be set up as reinforcements rather than sort of like a way to give everybody deep strike except at a certain location. Right. Now he says, it continues, but wait, this thing gets more complicated because it's a fortification, a vehicle and a building just like other stuff. However, unlike other fortifications, it doesn't have the transport keyword. Is that a mistake? If it did have that keyword, it would be an exception, also noted in tactical reserves. It's also confusing. So do things coming out more closely represent disembarking from a building, or are they reinforcements? Uh, they are reinforcements. Uh, there's I, nothing is... I think they've left the transport off for that reason explicitly. Right, uh, because uh, for one thing, it just Eldari units can go into the webway, so... You could have a transport in the web in a webway spar that comes through a webway gate. Otherwise, if it had a transport capacity, uh, unless it was really weird <laughs> and could hold vehicles, which there are things that can do that. Uh, usually at, at the Forge World or you know Forge World, like uh, the Firebird that can hold rhinos or something like, or like a Storm Raven that can hold dreadnoughts, uh, but. But yeah, th these these things. It's basically it's a fortification that gives you access to a free deep, uh, kind of a deep strike stratagem, if for lack of a better word. But yeah, they're not stored in the webway gate itself. It's just that that is the portal they use to enter, which is why when the webway gate, if you lose your last webway gate, well, not those things can't come through anymore, so that they're considered destroyed. So he continues. Secondly, listed in the Harlequin's Codex, do these stratagems override the fact that things normally can't arrive on the battlefield turn one? I assume so, but doesn't need an FAQ. So his stratagems are the Labyrinth Laughs, uh, one CP. This is, these are all Harlequin stratagems. Use the stratagem when a webway gate from your army is destroyed, but before you remove the model from the battlefield. 
immediately set up one Eldari unit from your army that has not yet been deployed from the webway, wholly within three inches of the webway gate, and more than one inch away from any enemy models. After you have done so, remove the webway gate from the battlefield as normal, and then webway ambush. Use the stratagem at the end of your movement phase. Choose a webway gate from your army. Either two units in a webway spar can emerge from that webway gate this turn, or one unit can emerge from that webway gate this turn and can be set up wholly within three inches of it and more than one inch away from any enemy models. So I would say Labyrinth Laughs is the only one I think that could have uh, a, a could have an exception because it's what triggers it is the destruction of the webway gate, which is probably going to happen on your opponent's turn anyway. So it wouldn't fall under normally the you can't play reserves on turn one because it would be you'd be playing this on your opponent's turn anyway. Right. But I think Webway Ambush, that one I don't think would break that limitation. It just changes up the terms of how things come out of the Webway Gate. But I still don't think it would allow you to bring them out turn one because that is – that's still during your movement phase. You can't bring things out during – at the end of your movement phase. You can't play any reinforcements on turn one. Yeah, I was going to say what you said for that on both, but you make a good point, Rob, that since the, the triggering thing is it being destroyed and the people coming out is an effect, yeah, I could see that one getting around the reinforcements one. Um, but does this need a fact? The fact that we have to talk about it here, yes, it needs a fact. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm, anytime that you need, you could use a clarification like that. It's perfect fact material. So either a clarification on, yeah, webway, you know, somebody just says, does webway, does the webway ambush stratagem let you uh, deploy things turn one? And part of that is because I don't. While we had the big FAQ two that clarified that, I don't know if the Harlequins. Uh, FAQ was updated along with that, and I don't believe it was. I don't think it was. So Otherwise, we would have brought this up back then. Also, consider that the big FAQ rule, as far as the tactical reserves, is still technically a beta rule. True. So a codex would not necessarily be updated along with that, and they didn't apply any changes to any related errata in to the uh, Harlequin Codex with that. So when that beta rule gets finalized, it'll probably interact with that. So, so you have to consider that the Codex that itself was written with the idea that there were no beta reserves rules. So once that rule is finalized, we'll, I think we'll get some clarification. Yeah. So yeah, now his second question. Okay, this question is a bit of a mess. And that, that's him saying that. That's not me. No, no judgment here. <laughs> so this question is a bit of a mess. It's about Inari. Sorry, lol. Anything with Inari is a mess. Inari is just a big, messy mess of a, of a lack of book right now. It says, I love using the Incarn. It's one of the best and most underrated slash unknown units in the game. And before, I used to be able to place it in an auxiliary support detachment, take the minus one CP hit, and move on so that it doesn't have to be the Warlord, etc. There's reasons. Don't judge. We all didn't have... We all don't have to take Dark Reapers and Avrain to cheese out our, on Inari. Oh, heck, Any- we're, we're right up there with you because, <laughs> I mean, I think they've seen me use the Incarn here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, after the big FAQ 2 and some changes to the way things are worded, this is more complicated. 
Uh, the summary is this. If you want to convert a detachment to gain the benefits of being a Nari, you add one of the HQs and make them your warlord. Simple. But what about my Incarn in an auxiliary support detachment? Battle Brothers from the big FAQ2 says a valid detachment can't have only these keywords in common. So does that mean a detachment of one is not okay? And Battle Brothers specifies that all the units in, a, in each detachment in your Battleforged army must have at least one faction keyword in common. In addition, this keyword cannot be Chaos Imperium, Aldari, Inari, or Tyranids unless the detachment in question is a fortification network that has no effect on your army faction. And However, as an FYI, the Incarn only has Eldari and Inari and no other traits. However, what about when this is added to the mix? So page 76, Army of the Reburn, this is an errata f- to index Xenos 1. Replace this paragraph with the following, quote, if either your if your army is battleforged and the warlord of your army is either Evrain, the Vizark, or the Incarn, then you can include any of these models in any craft worlds, Harlequins, or Drukari detachment as defined in their respective codexes, provided that the detachment does not include any of the following uh Urian, Rakarth, Drazar, Mandrakes, the Avatar of Cain, or any homunculus coven units. You can include these models in the detachment, even if you are using the Battle Brothers match play rule. If Evrain, the Vizark, and the Incarn is included in a detachment, all Eldari units in that detachment gain the Inari keyword. These units cannot use any of the following abilities, and you know it's all basically the Inari rules. I would not be making the Incarn the Warlord, so does any of this still apply? Is the fix for all this just to take a patrol and a cheap troop tax, but then he's the Warlord? See my issue? Is there any way to include the Incarn without him being the Warlord? Thanks so much, and sorry this was a long one. Feel free to not read all on the air and just summarize. No, no, I think it's important (laughs) to read all this on the air. Uh, But I have not heard back from any local TOs on these issues, and I'm not sure what the right way to play them is. Cheers, Austin. Um, This one is tricky, but I think... Take the parts one by one. Yeah, so I think... Step one, Warlord. Yeah, step one, Warlord. He can be your Warlord... If he's in an auxiliary, but then no, there's nothing else in... Oh, does it specifically say? Well, read the top part, Army of the Reborn. You can include any of these models in a craft word, Harlequin, or Drukari detachment. If he's the only one in that detachment... It's not one of those. Correct. You could make him your warlord if he was in a Supreme Command detachment with three warlocks. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or three Archons, three Succubi... Uh, three, I guess, troop leaders, troop masters, are they HQs? Yes, they are. So there is a way to have him as your warlord. It would have to be as a, in a Supreme Command detachment because that's the only super heavy slot that isn't in either a super heavy detachment or a super heavy auxiliary or an auxiliary detachment. That's, I think that's the only way he could be your warlord. And I don't see, uh, the only way I could see him to be in there without being the warlord is have detachment number two include either Yvrain or um, the Vizark and have them like in a patrol detachment and then be the warlord. But even then to include him based on the, the current reading of Battle Brothers would require him to be in a detachment with other units. Yes, he would still have to be in the Supreme Command, but if you included a patrol of one of the other two, then they could be the Warlord and he didn't have to be. Right. This is why the Yanari need their own book. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And also, I mean, again, this FEQ, that's the other thing you have to consider about the rules for the Ivrain, Vizar, you know, the, the Inari rules. They were updated for FAQ 1 
which then they just finalized it as in FAQ2 as the Battle Brothers are a, a finalized rule now. But uh, yeah, this is something that could definitely be updated, although hopefully we'll get an Inari. Like you said, we need an Inari Codex. Yes. But yeah, so I to to really use the Incarn in your army, you would need to have a second Inari detachment that had either Evrain or the Vizark. Probably Evrain. But yeah, the Incarn would only be able you could include the Incarn if you had a Supreme Command detachment that had three other HQs in it. That that would then be a valid craft worlds or you know, whatever detachment you decide to throw the three HQs in from. I think that's the only way that would work. It is very messy. Yeah, it is messy, but I think I think that's got it. That one's actually it's strangely enough, I, I'm not sure which is which was trickier, the, the Webway one or the Incarn one. The Incarn one I think Webway. is the messier. I think the, the Webway one is the messier one, but you can kinda logic through it. Yeah. The Webway one, yeah, that one I think has more has more ambiguity depending on how you want to read it, but I still think Labyrinth laughs because it would only happen either during your opponent's turn, or theoretically it could happen on your turn if they assaulted the Webway Gate and managed to destroy it, but then it still wouldn't be coming in during your movement phase. Right. So I think I think that's fine. Anyway, yeah, those are all of those could stand to be FAQ'd, just for pure clarification, because the Incarn being a Lord of War puts him in kind of an odd spot. Yes. All right, next up, we're going to switch from Inari to Orc shenanigans. Uh, Matt Biker. Yeah, tag out to Richard. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, Matt Biker writes, hey, guys, I haven't written in a while, but I wanted to run two rules questions by you. I've been playing Orcs now almost exclusively since the new Orc Codex came out, and I think they knocked it out of the park with the Vigilance Campaign book, my favorite being the souped-up shock attack gun. Listening to the LVO and post-LVO podcasts, I've heard about orc units, specifically Ludas, shooting three times a turn, and I can't figure out how they're doing that. Between the Bad Moon stratagem showing off and the Vigilist Shoot Again stratagem both sound similar, stating unit shoots twice. Not sure how you swing three shooting chances. The other question from the podcast was when the commentators were saying that they rolled high on both the number of shots and the strength of the souped-up shock attack gun. They would auto-use the shoots twice stratagem. That way, the way we interpreted the weapons rules, the strength and number of shots would still need to be rolled again, as opposed to Ludas, whose rule specifies the number of shots carry over to the end of the phase. Appreciate y'all's thoughts on these rules questions, and as always, keep up the good work. Matt. Well, thank you, Matt. Um, so, yeah, so Ludas do specifically say that when you roll the number of shots, they they keep that for the rest of the phase. Right. Um, yeah, that's, that's just worded into the rules of the death gun, that they have the shock attack gun, which I don't have Vigilus book, so I, I'm not sure about the, the souped up. Uh, the souped up gun. one has more, uh, it's, I think it's, let's see, what's the regular shot? The regular shot, yeah. it's 2d6 shots rather than d6 shots, otherwise the rules are pretty much identical. Okay. But yeah, it's before firing this weapon, roll once to determine the strength of of all its shots. If the result is 11 plus, each successful hit inflicts a d3 mortal wounds on the target in addition to any normal damage. So without the the specification that like the def gun has, it does kind of make that sound like y- you're going to roll the strength 
and shots like each time you go to fire the weapon. Yeah, and uh, to clarify further, uh, on the sidebar for modifying characteristics, this is in page 175 of your big rule book, or it's on a sidebar on the data sheets section of your uh, battle primer. For uh, You may encounter a characteristic that is a random value instead of a number. For example, a move characteristic might be 2d6 inches, or an attack's value might be d6. For all other characteristics, so we skip the movement part, for all other characteristics, roll to determine the value on an individual per model basis each time the unit makes attacks, inflicts damage, and so on. Note that regardless of the source characteristics of dash, can never be used, etc. Uh, so it's the rules specifically say every time you attack, you re-roll the numbers. Uh, which is why the Luda has to be, the Ludas are specifically worded with their death guns that they don't roll every time, they just roll once per phase. Uh, now, the stratagem that they're talking about, uh, there's two in mind. Uh, one is the, uh, the showing off stratagem for Bad Moon Infantry, which basically says, uh, use this stratagem immediately after resolving a shooting attack with a Bad Moon's Infantry unit from your army. That unit can shoot all of its weapons a second time. This stratagem can only be used once per phase. Now, for Ludas, you've already determined the number of shots that's fixed for the phase, you're going to use that same number of shots. Right. For the uh, shock attack gun, I would say that because you've now, you've resolved the attacks, you're going to shoot a second time. I would lean more towards you'd have to re-roll everything. Yeah. It, everything. Uh, I yep. would agree. Now, the one thing that makes it tricky is that line, roll once to determine the strength of all shots. Yeah. Which I could see the argument I, being made. I, I I believe the the intention of meaning that it's because you also have the D6 shots or you have two D6 shots in the case of the souped up shock attack mm-hmm. gun that like each of those shots, all of them will be the same strength. You're not yes. rolling to see how many t- shots you have and then rolling what the strength of those shots, each of those shots is. And I, I'd agree with that. I think that's, and, and I do think that's the intent. And so, yeah, I think for the big mech, I don't think I'd, I'd let somebody get away with shooting and then shooting with the same stat line again, because now you're resolving a second set of attacks. Core rulebook says reroll all those random numbers. Yeah. And I haven't found anything in any of the, any of the FAQs, Orc FAQ, main FAQ, uh, designer's commentary, anything like that, that would contradict that. Now, where it gets a little bit messy, uh, is the Vigilus one. Um, now, as far as the shooting twice, the only, or the shooting three times, bec- uh, Matt is, absolutely right these the stratagems in question never res, never refer to shooting an additional time they say shoot a second time which yeah. which would tell me they both have the same effect but they couldn't stack right uh, I, would, strat- I would also agree with that yeah so the stratagem in question is from the dread specialist detachment which does affect big mechs big mechs do become part they do get the dread trait so, or keyword. So, uh, they would be affected by this. They could fight, they could use the stratagem. The stratagem is custom ammo. Uh, it's a two CP, just like showing off. The wording is slightly different. Use the stratagem in your shooting phase. Pick a dread wall unit from your army. That unit can shoot twice this shooting phase with all of its ranged weapons. 
So the timing's a bit different. You actually spend it before you pick the unit rather than immediately after the shots are resolved. So yeah. that one, that needs to be, and again, this has not been FAQ. There's nothing in the Vigilus FAQ that, that addresses this in any way. It'd be nice if they both had the same wording or same timing. Again, I guess I could, I could see it maybe possibly allowing the strength to carry over. But it, but I could easily see it not. Also, so yeah, what's the I, wording on the other stratagem that allows you to shoot twice? Just out of curiosity, the that is the showing off, and the wording specifically on that is use this stratagem immediately after resolving a shooting attack with a bad moon's infantry unit from your army. That unit can shoot all of its weapons a second time. The stratagem so, can only be used once per phase. So the argu- so uh, as far as getting to shoot three times, and I don't agree with this, but I think I understand the logic behind what people are saying. You spend the custom ammo to get two shooting attacks because you pick do it before you shoot with either of the units. Like, okay, they will get to shoot twice. And then when you're resolving the first attack, you use the other stratagem to allow them to shoot again in that first attack. I think that's very thin ice uh and that's probably not how i would rule it but i could understand how someone could have potentially rules lawyered that into getting three getting to shoot three times yeah see i whereas i would say i don't think you could use it for three shots because they both provide the same effect of shooting yeah. a second time yeah i don't not think an additional able time. to either <laughs> i don't think right. you would be able to either but i i can kind of understand making the argument that since one happens at the beginning and then one hand happens immediately after resolving the attacks that I, I, I almost sort of understand where they come from. I don't agree with it. And I definitely think, as you said before, that the uh, resolving the strength and all of the different modifiers, I think you'd have to roll those each time. Yeah, I think that's kind of where, where I land on it. And also this brings this also is a, a great chance to um, point out the fact that if this is how the judges at Las Vegas Open ruled it, that you could use it for three times and that you didn't have to re-roll, whether we're saying that we agree with that ruling or not, if that was the ruling that was in place at LVO because a judge ruled it that way early in the match or you know early in the tournament, and that mm-hmm. as long as they ruled it consistently for the that way for the rest of the tournament, then that was the ruling for that tournament. That's the ruling yeah. for that event. So we're not Absolutely. we're not here to throw those judges under the bus. We're saying we can kind of see that interpretation. We disagree with it, but we're not saying the people from LVO were wrong because as long as it was allowed consistently across everybody competing, then that's the ruling. And Except again, this, Jason, Jason was wrong. Unless it, <laughs> unless it wasn't Jason that made the ruling, in which case you're throwing Jason under the bus for no good reason. Uh, yeah, I know. That's the, yeah, that's the point. Anyway, go on. <laughs> but no, I, I, so yeah, it's kind of like you can kind of see what the argument was for it. But yeah, I, I think we're all, we are all in agreement. It's not how we would rule it. So yeah, don't expect to be able to play it that way at Midwest Conquest. Uh, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Unless, unless an FAQ comes out that clarifies it and says that it is allowed. Hell, for all we know, because we are hearing about this second and third hand, Maybe they went to one of the rules guys that happened to be there from GW and the GW rep came back and said, oh, no, yeah, you can use this to stack attacks and you don't have to reroll the shuck attack gun. We don't know. 
So all we yeah. can do is hope that maybe that we do get an FAQ in March that will address this issue. Yeah. Yeah. And then finally, our list review for the episode is from Enoch Chan, and Enoch writes, Hi, P enemies, here's another list to be added to the review pile, but don't worry, it's not a guard list. Yay! An army we <laughs> theoretically know. I'm looking to start an orc army in the near future. My opponents are actually very diverse as there are space marines, both loyal and chaos, as well as guard, Eldar, all varieties, and even a gene stealer cult as well. As I'm looking for something that is an all-comer list and not something that is focused on tournament competitive play, uh, but it would be nice to get, uh, get tabled in an RTT if I attend one. Uh, thanks all. Keep up the good work. I look forward to hearing what your take is on this. So this is his list, his basic strategies, and this is very orky. Evil suns run up and hit stuff. Bad moons shoot stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That. So what he's got, he has a uh, he has an evil suns uh, battalion. Uh, with a war boss with an attack squig, the brutal but cunning warlord trait, Dekilla Claw, a combi rocket, and a power and a power claw because he upgraded to Dekilla Claw, and that's his warlord. And then a weird boy with warpath and a jump, who is a warped because of course he will be. Yeah. A unit of thirty shooter boys, three of which have rocket launches, and then a boss knob with a big chopper and a slugger, and there are three tank buster bombs in the squad. Uh, a second squad of the same, a third squad of the same. So three 30-boy squads with three rocket launches each and three tank buster bombs each. Two units of commandos with tank buster bombs uh, that are uh, five each, and the boss knobs have power claws. A Morkonaut with the custom force field, custom mega blaster, custom mega zappa, two rocket launches, and two big shooters, which I think is pretty much their stock setup, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Yeah, and then they a- don't... You really don't have options. <laughs> and then a uh, a Bad Moons Battalion that has a big mech in mega armor with a cu- combi rocket, custom force field, and a power claw. A weird boy with warpath. Three units of ten Gretchen each for his troops. A unit of pay- er, a pain boy. And then a unit of eleven Ludas and a unit of nine Ludas. And this is 95 PL and 2,000 points on the nose. I will say... The the pain boy, I, I'm not sure about the pain boy here in the uh, Bad Moons detachment because the pain boy is only going to be helpful for the Ludas or the Big Mac. Well, and I imagine or the prob- or the weird boy. Well, I am I imagine that it's probably there to help keep the Ludas alive. Oh, the other thing I noticed yeah. is because of how he's got the Ludas yeah, with one squad at eleven and one squad at nine. He's probably expecting them to mob up turn one. Yeah. Because then he's also got a leadership 20, effectively, Luda squad. They're not going to break if he loses anybody. And the pain boy is going to try to make sure that he doesn't lose anybody. I mean, why? Ludas Ludas go, yeah, up to 10 additional Ludas. So being able to get a unit of 20 is pretty sweet. Yeah. And then. Yeah, I can see that. And and then you you park the the pain boy behind him and. And use that to help keep them alive because they've only got six up save anyway. So, and then three units of three units of Gretchen in front of them. So you're basically going to have a little bad moon brick, right? And let's see, the commandos they can see they can come in off the table edges, can't they? Uh, yes. What they? Yeah, cunning infiltrators, right? So they basically can do, or they not even table edge. They just deep strike yeah so because otherwise my my main concern with this because 
I don't know if there's anything that would actually go inside the Morkonaut. I think you would just be using the custom force field on it to keep other things alive. Yeah, I think so. But my yeah, my main concern is that there's uh, there's a lot of foot slogging, and even with the the red suns, you know, going going an inch further. I mean, boys still only move five, don't they? Uh, yes. So okay, so that's got them moving six and plus it, one on their, but they can they're probably advancing every turn as long as as long as they're close enough to the board boss. Yes. Well, no, just evil suns. I mean, they they can or, well they they advance and don't fire assault. It doesn't affect their assault weapons. Okay, right. So they're probably they're probably moving close to ten inches a turn. So let's go back to the Morkonaut for a second because I'm other than the custom force field, which again, as you mentioned, you're moving forward, so you're probably going to be running out of the range of it with most of the boys. Is there anything else that would that you could use in that slot instead? Like, would it be more like the, to take some of the artillery or something instead, you know, to spend 300 points on something that you can, I don't know. I'm just trying to think of a, cause it seems like a lot of points for something that doesn't to me anyway, kind of fit the list. Unless I'm missing something and not thinking of how he's using it. Well, I, I don't think it's a problem of it not being able to keep up. It's moving nine inches well, a turn okay. and can still, except for the custom mega zappa, everything else it has is, is assault as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah. so it's it's advancing as well. It gets the same Evil Suns bonus. So it's normally moves eight, so now it's moving nine, plus another, like I said, on average, three to four inch advance. It's keeping up with the boys. If anything else, it's outpacing them. And it's got a nine inch bubble of custom force field. Okay. Does the unit have to be within wholly within the nine inches or it- it, it does they have do. to be wholly within, which is why, like, you're mm-hmm. really only going to cover, like, one of the boy units just right. because boy, the boys are going to take up so much real estate. Yeah. Oh, well, I was just trying to think if there's if there's anything else that might work better with the list. I, I mean, and I and I said I don't know the Orc Codex super well, but I don't know. I just was trying to think if those 310 points is a is a big commitment. I don't know if there was something else that might be like a unit of, you know, knob bikers or something like that, which granted, I have no idea if that's comparable point wise, but just something else to kind of that maybe fits with the list a little bit more thematically. Well, or there, well, there's one other thing that it could be doing. It could be hanging with the Ludas because if that's the, true, because if the Morka not die for one thing, it's shooty. It's providing a nine-inch force, uh, you know, a nine-inch bubble of uh, five-up invuln against shooting, which with all the other, basically, it's making that little loot of fortress. And if you do manage to kill the Morkonaut, then they just loot it. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. And if it's looters that loot it, you have a fifty-fifty chance of getting command point you spent on looting it back. So we, I mean, we don't have a lot of information on how he's using it. The boys have enough bodies. They can, they'll, I don't really know if they need the five up protection and there's nothing since you can only protect one of the boys squads anyway, Mm -hmm. but I could definitely see parking this near Luda because one other thing the Morkonaut doesn't specify is that it only affects clan orc units. It's just friendly orc units. Okay. Yeah. No, that's fair. That's true. It it could also help cover like those Gretchen. 
Yeah, because okay. Gretchen can can yeah. can make use of, of custom force field, whereas they don't get any benefit from the the pain boy. So yeah, that's that's a place okay. where I could actually see the I can At see least the more. I believe they don't. Pain boy docks tools. Uh, roll a d6 each time a clan infantry or biker unit loses a wound. So yeah, it, they'd work on Grotz too. Because yeah, Grotz do have clan. They just Gretchen just can't benefit from the actual clan traits. Yeah, they, yeah, they don't get the clan culture, but they culture, they're not needing right. it. They're just they're just meat shields. Right. Right. <laughs> right. But they still they still technically have the clan keyword. Mm-hmm. Which was the part that I was was forgetting. So, so, so yes, yeah. they they actually do. They actually would also benefit from the pain boy. So yeah, twenty twenty ludas protected by a custom force field, three units of Gretchen and a pain boy who can then loot the the Morkonaut if it dies and get their armor improved. That's going to be a hard rock to to. That's going to be a hard nut to crack. Okay. And that's going to put fair. out a yeah. that puts out a ridiculous number of shots. Yep. And they're bad moon, so they can shoot twice, <laughs> not three times, but twice. Yes. <laughs> and then I think the the evil sons just foot slog it quickly across the board, and because they're all big mobs of boys, uh, unstoppable green tide comes into play. And if you if one of them gets chewed up to less than half models and somehow doesn't break, uh, you just spend your three CP to bring it back at full strength. Yep. I, I mean, it's, it is very orky and I can see where the, where the tools are to the, the one thing that I think is actually kind of weird looking at it is, um, the big mech in mega armor. Cause I don't really know where it goes unless it's just out by himself. Um, he, well, he also has a custom force field, so maybe it is a case where you put the Morkonaut, which has more movement with the boys and leave the, the big mech, which has a whopping four inch movement, right? Oh yeah. You could put it. Yeah. And keep him with the the Ludas. Keep him with the Gretchen and the Ludas. Okay, to no, give that w- them the five up in bone. No, that would so, make sense. I mean, it it could very well just be dependent upon what your opponent does, and, and it, it could just be a, a flexible tactic that way that you could use either for either spot. And then the the bad moon the the bad moon weird boy you could just have running around with the reds or with the evil suns ones because none of their powers are clan specific. So yeah. you could be hitting two guy, two mobs of boys with Warpath, which gives them an extra attack each, which is horrifying. Right. Or, or one keeps with one unit of boys, and then you you jump them around uh-huh. where you need them, and then the other one is there to, to Warpath like another unit. So, so that that would help cover some of the uh, that would cover some of the the mobility issues that you might have. Well, right, the 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 jump I think help. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, and then having the commandos who can deep strike in, because that would help you with the the objective game too. Most armies are going to be hard pressed to have more bodies near an objective than you do. Yeah. So, <laughs> so no, I I think this is good. It's it's leveraging some of the the better stuff 
in the army, it's weird to see a, an evil sons battalion that sure. has no vehicles. Yeah. Right. But, I mean, there's, well, it has one vehicle, has more, which actually, you know, you could, if you, if you kept the Morkonaut moving up with the boys, you could put the, uh, the weir- the war boss inside it. Uh, and then he can loot it if it dies. He can loot it if it dies. Uh, oh. the, the thing is, is you don't get, well, let's see. You don't get one. the wah bonus if. You don't get the wah bonus because. Because the war boss isn't on the table. Uh, true, and you've got a one in six chance of him just dying if the the Morkonaut dies. That that <laughs> oh, is right. that is problematic. But it's it would be a place you could put him. I mean, it's just like since they are the same uh, clan, he would at, he could actually go inside. I'm not saying yeah. he should, but he could. It, it, the only thing I can think of is it would keep him safe from anything that can pick out characters. True. So uh, true. And, you know, that was something we didn't talk about in news and new releases is that we've got an Imperial, uh, an Assassin's Index now in White Dwarf. Yeah. That's right. true. Yeah. yeah. We completely overlooked that, uh, which is sad because I have the, the White Dwarf sitting right here next to me. <laughs> I'm so <laughs> Yeah, I still game. need to pick that up. I, we, maybe we can talk about that next episode. The rules for it are interesting because it lets you spend CP to drop Assassins into like any detachment from what I understand. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. 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 So you drop and pay the points. Yeah. I mean, that could theoretically be a good way to also do Inquisition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like could just be. drop in an Inquisitor. But yeah, we'll we'll talk about that in another episode. But uh, anyway, yeah, Enoch, I I I see this list work. I I can I can see how the pieces of this list go together, and I think this will be very effective. Um. I mean, you're gonna flood the field. I mean, some armies will, some armies might be, might be troublesome, but you've you've got the bodies to absorb it, and you can put out a a, a really frightening number of attacks and or shots, depending on what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. And again, the strategy: evil sons run run up and hit stuff. Bad moon shoot stuff. Covers this list in a T, but there's some nice tricks inside that that are uh, appropriately orky. Right, because you're. You're still shooting a lot with those, with the evil sons. I mean, I'd almost be curious. I mean, a thing to consider is after playing it a few times and seeing how the evil sons clan culture does for the mobility of the boys and whether or not just using goths might add more punch to your close combat. I, I could see that for the I, list because with all the boys with shooters, they they don't have quite as many attacks in close combat once they get there, but they are doing more shooting on the way there. So it'd be an interesting thing to to kind of compare how those two clan cultures would work, like for this exact same like detachment. Yeah, and then if you find mobility is a little bit of an issue. Um, you could easily take one of those squads of boys and break it into like two mobs of ten, and or you know two two t- squads of like ten or twelve, and then put trucks in. True. And and or you know maybe just yeah you know, and just you're know, playing you know, play around with the points, and that would give you a couple of big hitting bo- mobs, and then a couple of fast 
you know, fast squads. But that that's more of a play around with this, what you've got, and see if you've got the mobility. Because with the Evil Sons, I mean, they're moving almost as fast as trucks at that point. So Yeah. And it might, it, uh, another thing, if you're still having trouble with, with the mobility, it might be worth it to spend another CP and, and get an, that other weird boy to be an, another warped. True. And have them have the jump also. Right. Just in case. And again, the jump is is clan agnostic. It doesn't care which one they're from. So you could, yeah, you could be jumping two of those 30-boy mobs easily. Yeah. So yeah, Enoch, we we say go with what you got, play around with it, and, you know, uh, but yeah, I, I also like Richard's suggestion of maybe try it out, at, you know, if if the mobility isn't giving you every i mean if it's good but you need more hard hitting try running it as goths otherwise yeah maybe try yeah at make the other other weird boy warpad either option is good play around with it but i think this is a really solid base to start from and and if you have a list you'd like us to look at and we have a a backlog we're working through it or a question whether it's a a statement on something like you answering another list uh, another listener's letter or you have a, a question or multiple questions or rules FAQs things like that you want to throw our way uh there's three good ways to do that uh first off is our email address uh our email address is our first name at preferredenemies.com. So Rob at Kevin at Dennis at Richard at preferredenemies.com. A second way is on our Facebook page. Uh, Facebook, uh, we are at facebook.com slash preferredenemies. Uh, we post uh, what we're doing there, uh, pictures of what, of armies, pictures from events we go to, uh, news, latest news and releases. We just, we posted like when the, as soon as the Abaddon reveal was up today, we posted that. Uh, if you like us there and follow us, um, send us a message. We and uh, you can send us a message on Facebook. And then the third way is on Twitter. We are at per- twitter.com/slash/preferredenemy uh, singular. And again, we post updates there, and you can message us. You can direct message us or respond to one of our uh, posts there. We try to take questions from all three sources, compile them together, put them into a list, and we read that on air in the next episode. Uh, in addition, we also have a Patreon if you want to help support the show, and this helps pay for new equipment, uh, new microphones for people, uh, helps pay for some of our travel costs for going to events, things like that. Uh, if you want to help support the show, uh, we're not going to lock any content behind the paywall. Anything we do will be available for everybody, so there's no obligation to give. But if you want to support what we're doing and help us with the uh, show, I mean, like it can. Well, you guys have completely paid for all of our hosting costs, which is fantastic. You've bought us a new mixing board. You bought us. Uh, we you've bought us basically a pair of Blue Yeti microphones at this point. Uh, you know, you and we would not have been able to do it easily without you guys so we really appreciate all the all the support um it's basically just an online tip jar it's uh, patreon.com slash preferred enemies uh even if you only want to give a dollar just because hey what we're doing is worth a dollar to you per month for for episodes which we try to keep out when we're not sick or snowed in if if everybody just gives a dollar it adds up really really fast so we really appreciate it so we're going to take a break sponsor identification and when we come back we'll be uh, talking part two which is our review of the gene stealer cult codex see you in a bit miniatures we build them we paint them we love them that's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely 
And that's where Kara Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system. They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard size miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models. KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors, that won't scratch or snag your models. And to protect the foam, the trays are carried in easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. They also offer a full range of Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the Autofill app to find just the right trays for your particular force. Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs. You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase, soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. Are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield? Do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table and make your battle look real? Then you need to check out the battle mats from GameMat. They're professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a GameMat mat to fit any kind of terrain. Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, and when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered with their folding Gboard portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain. If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve. And we're back, and it's time to uh, dig into our main topic, which is our look at the Gene Steeler Colts Codex, which is only about a month after the books come out. But that's, again, as I reiterated earlier in the episode, that's because Winter has sucked. But uh, we've we've talked, obviously, about the first iteration of the Gene Steeler Cult Codex, and so the fluff hasn't really changed much, uh, although it's been greatly expanded on now because we have subcult factions because just like every other eighth edition book we have to have all the sub factions covered but the main part about the gene stealer cult is that the tyranid hive fleets like to send individual gene stealers out into the wild and once a gene stealer a single gene stealer lands on a planet it will start basically infecting people with gene stealer dna through a uh, process called the gene stealer's kiss they basically stab you with an ovipositor and implant some uh, genetic material into you and also hypnotize you and make you completely loyal to the gene stealer and then the people who are infected go find other people and they have they have babies and then things get bad from there these are the worst babies ever. Yeah. It, it gets worse and worse. Actually, it kind of gets not so bad. And then really bad. And then really bad. So imagine like, it, it's like a cross between the movie Alien and the movie It's Alive, which is like a nice deep horror cut for you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, so basically the people who are infected give, you know, they either have children or sire children who are horribly monstrous and look mostly like gene stealers, only slightly human. And then 
they have kids because somebody finds them attractive. I don't, I, I don't think it's voluntary at that mind point. Mind control, I'll, yeah. Mind, yeah, it's mind <laughs> yeah. control. They have kids, and then that generation looks a little less monstrous. And then the third generation looks almost human, still a little weird. And then the fourth generation can pretty much pass for human, except for they have no body hair, their skin's a little weirdly pale or purplish, and they have, like, little nose or forehead ridges. But otherwise, they can pretty much pass for normal humans and have productive lives in the the infrastructure of the Imperium, or sometimes even serve in the uh, Imperial Guard. And then the fifth generation hits, and then they're just plain old gene stealers at that point. And yet their parents think they are the sweetest, most beautiful babies and take care of them and love them while they're trying to eat their faces. Yep. And meanwhile, the original gene stealer has grown and grown and gotten huge and turned into what is called a patriarch and is basically the head of the entire cult. And every generation and everyone who's been mind-controlled by the brood mind here is now completely loyal to that patriarch and wants to help it further the cult and grow the cult. And as you can guess, this is not good for the Imperium in any way, shape, or form. Nope. And so... The whole reason this these cults exist is because that's how the Tyranid fleets basically can bring down the defenses of a world from within. Uh, because eventually, as the as the hive fleets come closer to a planet, then you start getting weirder mutations and things that, and some of the uh, the earlier generations mutate to look a lot more like standard. Tyranid bioforms, and then the fleet is brought. They they like I said they bring down the defenses, so nothing can stop the 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 fleet, which they think of as like the star gods, the star fathers are coming. They've come to for the day of ascension. They're going to to raise us up and make us mighty because we are the scum and the scum and villainy of the Imperium. We are we are the under like the the dirty underbelly, but now we shall rise, and then they get eaten too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it, they're happy about it. No, not Mostly. really. Well, not really. If you read the but like they're excited at first and they fight side by side and then they freak out when the Tyranids turn on them. And okay, eat that's them. fair. Yep. <laughs> Although yeah, I, it, it it's actually kind of partially by design because if you think about it, and, and usually it's it's only like the pure strains that get away, but like that's part of how the cult can continue to spread is that those pure strain gene stealers then like run away with evacuating populace and can spread the cult further. Mm-hmm. Yep. And sometimes they'll even like s- shove them into shipping containers and mail them off to other planets, which is particularly yeah. nasty. Yes. And, and to give you an idea of how insidious these cults are, uh, there's a map uh, of gene stealer cults of the Imperium and they basically like have every infected planet marked and with a red dot and there are red dots all over the map yes including holy terra holy terra is infested with a gene stealer cult which that's yep. not going to end well ah <laughs> uh, what's the worst that could happen uh well <laughs> well uh, funny you ask <laughs> yeah a lot of the uh 
a lot of the they, or they cover some of the gene steel occult uprisings and yeah it it doesn't generally go well for the imperium now granted the gene stealer cults themselves aren't amazingly well armed they generally tend to be uh you know using makeshift mining tools and whatever civilian weaponry they can get their hands on but a there's a whole bunch of them b they have gene stealers available and other weird gene stealer like mutants and then on top of that they can infect the imperial guard because whether it's people who've been hit under mind control or people who have received the gene stealer's kiss maybe it was that very first those those first people that gave birth to the first generation of mutants uh they may be completely seated through the guard and may be completely loyal to the uh to the patriarch and are just biding their time until they get called up and then they turn on the defense so anything the imperial guard has the gene stealer cult cultists can pretty much get their hands on too right i mean there's a a lot of to be said for the element of surprise and you know lots of meticulous planning of you know surprise tactics yeah because if nothing else they're patient they will bide their time until it's just right unless somebody unless their hand gets forced which is kind of what happened in the vigilist system when the orcs attacked Right. I, I, I did also find it interesting, something that I had kind of wondered about and never really seen a lot on in, in like Gene Steeler cult lore. They have like a little section in, on here talking about how like the Gene Steelers actually can implant and infect like other races aside from humans. Ooh. Yeah. I, but they I, I kind like... of, they kind of go over like, each of the different races and say why it doesn't really work very well (laughs) because like they all seem to have some sort of vaguely like psychic or almost their own kind of connection to one another that makes it so that an infected being of that race would just stand out to the the normal like run of the mill person of that race. So you're saying that and humans so are it's shitty. not not very secretive and it doesn't work very well. Like the Eldar because they are so highly psychically sensitive, mm-hmm. uh, or the orcs who kind of have that gestalt sort of brood mentality. Um. That goes on with with their law energy between them, like infected individuals of those races just stick out too much. Interesting. And, and even like the Crute, because they can sense because they basically absorb DNA, which, you know, the whole the whole shapers having them eat the dead so they can absorb the DNA and take it into themselves. They can smell when somebody's DNA has gone bad because it's been infected by a gene stealer or the Tau have the weird pheromonal slash possibly slightly psychic link deference to the ethereals. And so they can like can override actually the loyalty to the to the gene stealer brood mind. So yeah, the, it, there are all these other races. There's something about them that, yeah, you can infect them, but they don't make good cultists. Humans on the other hand are great. 
<laughs> We're pink and squishy and psychically useless for the most part. <laughs> uh, humans are are the worst. We are the we are the we are the universal equivalent of spam. <laughs> an old far side cartoon of like uh two lions like picking their teeth on the side of a riverbank and there's like shredded clothes and a pith helmet there and it's like yeah that was great no claws or scales or anything just soft and squishy and pink <laughs> <laughs> and that and that's pretty much how we are seen by the gene stealer cults it, it's it's a very insidious well-planned cult and yeah part of that that patience and the meticulous planning because a lot of them are just they're mutated enough they can't fit in with most of imperial society they tend to work in in businesses or ventures that keep them hidden away from the rest of the uh the imperium so there's a lot of them working in mining meat processing which that's a whole nother thing where they can they they hide gene stealers inside carcasses it's great like food processing, uh, power generation, manufacturing, mining. And so when the time comes to to bring about their rebellion, they can shut a planet down just by basically sabotaging all the, the means of production, the means of, you know, the logistical means to keep armies fed and supplied, keep the defenses going. They They can basically turn over a planet pretty quickly. And there can be billions of them. So yeah, it's it's a it's a very different uh, faction than we're used to seeing in, in the 40k universe because most 40k threats are threats from without. This is one of the first times we've seen. I mean, technically, it started by aliens, but then it becomes a threat from within. And chaos cultists kind of work that same way, but this one is so much deeper embedded into imperial society. It can get very difficult to uproot and then very difficult to deal with uh, on a scale that even like chaos cult contamination, going for the alliteration there, uh, can't you know can't quite hit that same scale. Yeah, they they just seem better at hiding than than chaos does. I mean, chaos tends to be showy and let people know. <laughs> yeah, and and also chaos has. There's one thing that chaos doesn't have that the gene stealer cults do have, and that is absolutely unquestioning loyalty. Yeah. Chaos cultists are cowards. They'll they'll break. You know, they're either going to be slavering fanatics or they will break at the first opportunity. Often a little bit of both. Gene stealer cultists are psychically blindly loyal. They cannot help themselves but be loyal. And to the point where they will act as body shields for for the uh, the the higher ups, the for the leadership in the in the cult and especially for the patriarch yes. they will they will gladly take a bullet a las cannon a smite they anything that you can send up against you know send at a gene stealer cult character if there's a, a body nearby they'll jump in the way of it if they can and that kind of takes us like immediately into the the rules for uh gene stealer cults and in the previous iteration of gene stealer cults the key thing that made them act very differently 
from any other faction was the cult ambush rule, which in in the last in seventh edition gave them the ability to pretty much pop up anywhere, possibly within assault range, and pull off just like surprising assaults, pull off extra shooting attacks. Um, yeah, like they could jump up, they could pop up like within a few inches of you and just immediately attack you, which when you suddenly have a large brood of pure strain gene stealers doing that, that hurt really bad. Um, yes. <laughs> and that was what they had going into like in index for index eighth edition 40 K. They, tried bringing that same ability in to the point where like if you had and was it 2017 chapter proved where they added the uh the stratagem which would let you like roll three dice if you had a primus and take the best mm-hmm. result uh yeah mm-hmm. yeah so they had a chart that you rolled on to see because you might end up just being able to place them in your deployment zone you might pop pop them off uh, or they might pop up on a table edge, they might deep strike in next to somebody. There was a whole range of things that could happen. That's gone now. It is completely changed. And I mean, a, a, a big part of that is, is because of the, you know, changes to how reserve rules worked. Yeah. Um, be- that they did. What was that? Uh, the, was that beta rules in 2018 or uh, was that FAQ. one of the FAQ? It was the big FAQ. Big FAQ one started it and then big FAQ two really locked it down. In fact, when big yeah. FAQ two came out, they even had to say, yeah, we're redoing gene stealer cults. So they'll work with this. Right. Yeah. Cause it would have just been too much to have one faction that can break that much of the game. Yeah. Because like we, we talk about Yanari with all of their extra, shenanigans that they're still currently able to do gene stealer cults would have been so overpowered with those rules in this current environment oh yeah and gene stealer cults uh they were near the end of seventh edition they were one of those armies that maybe not like top table but they were absolutely scary and a and a good player could use them very effectively there are ways to more or less if not guarantee really get the better results on the, on the deep strike or on their cult ambush chart. And then they had the ability to like, if they, if they got in trouble, they could retreat and then come back and be reinforced. Mm -hmm. And those were all very powerful abilities. And eighth edition has definitely toned that kind of behavior down. Like I said, with big FAQ two and the fact that reserves are absolutely locked down. You cannot bring reserves in first turn. And like before that, it was even, you can bring in reserves, but they can't have to be in your deployment zone. Now it's just like, no, there are no reserves that come in turn one. The whole point of reserve is that it's a reinforcement that comes in later. And so there was there was the question of how are they going to make that work with gene stealer cults? Uh, how are they going to make that possibly function in any real meaningful way without kind of breaking that tenet that they've set for themselves? And so the solution is a very interesting one because this is the first codex that has come with cardboard tokens to adjust for it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the new cult ambush rule says that you can when you are deploying your army and this this works whether you're doing alternating units as in like the core rule book missions or whether you're doing alternating armies like the chapter approved 2018 missions when you're deploying anytime you set up a unit you can set it up in ambush instead of being on the battlefield 
if it's infantry or a biker unit, you can set it up in ambush or underground. And underground basically means you put it in deep strike reserve. And it will come in with it, you know, no more than or no closer than nine inches starting on turn two. You can bring those in. That one's pre- that's pretty standard. However, there's also the placing it in ambush. And that one is very interesting because when you place a unit in ambush, you tell your opponent, OK, this unit is going into ambush. If it's a transport, you have to tell tell them who is in the transport. But this unit is going into ambush. You do not place it on the table. Instead, you place a token. And like I said, they included a sheet of cardboard blip markers. So kind of akin to Space Hulk. You put a blip marker, an ambush marker on the table where you would deploy a unit that is going into ambush. You can do multiple units this way. You, In fact, you can do, as long as the unit has the cult ambush ability, you can do all of the army that way. And in fact, the FAQ has specified anything placed in ambush, not underground, but placed in ambush counts as being on the battlefield for the purpose of tactical reserves. So you can place your entire army just in the form of little round cardboard tokens. Now they have to be in your deployment zone. They can't be within nine inches of another, of an enemy model, but that's the only restriction. And then when it's time to – so you've deployed all these cardboard tokens across the table. Then what really matters is who goes first. If you go first, you reveal where everything actually is. So you deploy units on the – basically within an inch of the ambush markers. Now, when you said like, okay, so this unit is going to ambush. I'm putting a token – here and then that doesn't mean that unit has to pop up on that token it can have pop up on any of the tokens you've placed on the table doesn't have to be that one and then once they're all placed if it's if it's on your turn you do at the beginning of your movement phase so that you have a movement phase so really the if you're going first the benefit is your opponent doesn't really know what stuff is where if you go second then you don't reveal them until the end of your opponent's first movement phase. So they have to move towards you blindly, not knowing what units are going to be where. And then at the end of their movement phase, so you can still be shot at, but at the end of their movement phase, then you actually deploy your army. And it's, it's an interesting ability. And I'm, on the one hand, I really dig the ability to, Keep things hidden from your opponent to deny them the intelligence of, oh, this unit is is here, so I'm going to like, oh, so they put their vehicles here, so I'm going to send my anti-armor stuff there, and I'm their big blobs of infantry are here, so I'm going to put my like troops with with bolters or whatever over here to deal with them. So you can kind of deny that, but it's definitely not anywhere near as powerful as the old cult ambush ability. Yeah. I will agree with that from being playing against a couple times where I had Tyranids in my face on the top of one assaulting me. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that was no fun. Now, there are stratagems, and we'll talk about some of those that can mitigate some of that or can mess around with the ambush markers or allow you to do some shenanigans with the revealing units from, uh, you know, from underground. But for the most part, this is, a, this is one of the first armies where it really behooves you to go second. There, there's not a lot yeah. of benefit with the cult ambush ability to go first. Other than 
you can the one benefit if you go first is that you can still wait to do that until your opponent's deployed and you can see where they've placed their stuff so that you can place your things in response to them which means uh, every pretty much everything in this book has cult ambush including things like these the cult Lehman Rust tanks and cult uh, chimeras and cult armored sentinels that you have in your army, you can place those via cult ambush. So you, if you want to put your tanks in the back, because there's really like, you just need to hold, like hold them back. Or you want to have a tank wall up front to shoot, shoot at threats. You have that flexibility to decide where you want them. One thing I do think is a bit weird is uh, in the previous version of cult ambush, you could place character. Like whenever you cult ambushed a unit, you could put a character with them so they all came out together. You can't do that anymore. So every time you place a character, you have to place a token as well. Which is interesting, but then again, it, it's just more tokens. That, that is <laughs> which, true. Which that makes is, it more confusing that, <laughs> for that your is true. That is true. That is true. It would be nice to have the ability to pop a, a character out with the unit, although characters aren't embedded in units the way they were in the previous edition either. So True. But, I mean, it, it, you could also, like, kind of cluster your tokens together because the, specifically the way your the models go around the tokens, it, it's not kind of like Deep Strike where, you know, it's centered on that token. You pretty much just they go into you place one model like within an inch of the token and then you unit coherency place all the rest of the models. So they could all just be off to one side True. of where the token is. Yeah. So you could kind of cluster around some tokens together and then that could get you, you know, characters really in close with other units. That That is true. That is true. And it would let you kind of like you could have a unit like or you could have a marker on the edge of a building and then like stretching unit into the building rather than being out in the open. Right. You do get some extra tactical flexibility there. Yeah, because basically the rules are every time you reveal an ambush marker, select one unit from your army that's in ambush, set up one model, one model from that unit within an inch of the marker then remove the marker, and then set up the rest of the unit wholly within six inches of the first model. So they do have to be kind of clustered together. You can't stretch them out into a long line. And, well, then they have yeah. to, and then they have to be wholly within your deployment zone, not within nine inches from any enemy models. Any models that can't be placed that way are destroyed. You know, standard kind of... They, they act like they're coming from reinforcements, but they're not considered reinforcements, uh, for tactical reserves, they're also not considered uh, reinforcements for counting as having moved. So if right. it's uh, if they've got a heavy weapon, they count as being stationary because they were there. The idea being they were there the whole time. You just didn't know it. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely things you can definitely some neat tricks you can do with this. And you can kind of the, and the idea is that you can kind of stymie your oppo opponent's plans. Plus, you have anything that's not on the table in ambush is in normal deep strike and could pop up anywhere. So, right. And the, the tokens that they, they include here with the codex, they, they are like, I mean, little radar blip things, much like you said, the, the, uh, space Hulk tokens, 
they are roughly the same size as a 32 millimeter like base. You could make your own. Oh, easily. Um, with just like, you know, bits and stuff, or you could have like 3d printed, you know, gene stealer cult emblems or yep. Use those, um, and the size of the marker actually technically even doesn't matter because it, the rules also state that you're just always measuring from the very center of the marker. Yeah. And uh, as a little quick sh- uh, shameless self-plug, uh, somebody may have created a uh, token on th- and put it up on Thingiverse for free for anybody who wants to uh, to use those because I was trying to make faction tokens. so And there wasn't <laughs> one for Gene Stiller Colt, so now there is. So if you so go to yay. Thingiverse and and look for uh, Gene Stealer Cult token, you'll find one I created. Nice. And, and that could all. And also, I imagine there's going to be a brisk business in acrylic tokens for these. Oh, as for well. sure. La- laser cut yeah. acrylic tokens, laser cut wood, stuff like that. If somebody can can figure out a a, a way to make a 32 mil token, I and, and spoilers, there's a lot of people that do that. Yeah, there will be custom ambush markers popping up for dedicated Gene Sealer Cult players everywhere. But I do I really appreciate the fact that GW didn't just leave you to your own devices to be like, yeah, we'll figure it out. They, they actually <laughs> gave they give you 28 tokens, which will cover a, a, cover an army pretty well. Yeah. And they even included a 9-inch range ruler so that you can make sure that you're not within nine inches of an enemy. So they, they give you all... Th- this is the first time they've had extras in a codex to make sure you have all the tools you need to actually play your army apart from the models themselves. Uh, and then we, uh, we talked about the, that unquestioning loyalty, and that is actually a rule that... Uh, so any unit that has unquestioning loyalty says, every time you fail a saving throw for a cult character, so it has to be one of the... When they say cult, it's one of these the sub-factions... Anytime you fail a char- saving throw from a cult character or cult character model, and each time a cult character model suffers a mortal wound before inflicting damage, check to see if it's within three inches of any friendly cult or brood brothers, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, units with this ability. If it is, you can select one of those units and roll a d6. On a four up, you do not inflict any damage on the character, but one model in the selected unit your choice is slain. Otherwise, the character suffers damage as normal. You have an entire army of savior protocols. Yep. Only for your characters. So it's, in some ways, it's powerful, but in other ways, it's like, there's a few characters in this army you absolutely want to protect. Like, the Patriarch is one of them. Yeah. So having units that can just take wounds for him is amazing. Right. And, and also, actually, interestingly enough, all the characters themselves also have this rule, except for the Patriarch. Because he's not going to jump in the way of anybody. Because he's not going to take – He's everybody's going to be protecting him. He's not going to worry about protecting somebody else. Right. Which is a nice – flavorful way to to reflect that in the rules right which is actually a change of from the index because he because actually the printing in the index he has unquestioning loyalty for some reason (laughs) (laughs) he thinks very highly of himself hey what kind of leader you know what kind of leader are you if you won't take one for the team right (laughs) (laughs) the one who lives yeah (laughs) 
And then, so I, I mentioned Brood Brothers, and that's because, uh, first off, there are a few units in the army, basically anything that is borrowed from the Imperial Guard. So, so the Brood Brothers Infantry Squad, or the uh, Cult Lehman Russ, the Cult Armored Sentinels, Cult Scout Sentinels, Cult uh, Chimera, Cult, uh, Brood Brothers Heavy Weapon Squad. These are all basically Imperial Guard units that have Gene Stealer cultist heads on them. They act pretty much like Imperial Guard units, except they don't have access to the Orders system. But they do have Cult Ambush, they do have Unquestioning Loyalty. They don't have that little bracketed Cult keyword trait, you know, faction trait. But instead they have Brood Brothers. Anything that is Brood Brothers can be included in a Gene Stealer Cult detachment without interfering with the selection of a Cult keyword However, they can never get any benefit from it. Right. The the basic kind of mercenary sort of system that we've seen with other codexes. Right, right. But it goes further than that because something else that Gene Stealer cults can do, because as I mentioned, they can infiltrate the Imperial Guard. And while that's partially reflected with these Brood Brothers detachments, you can just take straight up take a guard detachment with your army. And they were able to do that in the index. It was, like, limited to, like, one per, like, for every Gene Stealer cult detachment, you could have one guard detachment. Yes, and that, that is still that is still the case in the Codex. Yes. How the rules work for this is, uh, in addition to represent Astro Militarum forces that have been subverted, you can include Astro Militarum units and Gene Stealer cult units in the same match play army, even though these units do not have any faction keywords in common. In such cases, ignore the Astro Militarum units when choosing your army's faction. If your army is battleforged, you can only include one Astro Militar- Militarum detachment, one in which every unit has the Astro Militarum keyword, in your army for each Gene Stealer cult detachment in that army cannot include named characters in these detachments and these detachments cannot be specialist detachments so no emperor's wrath artillery batteries in your gene stealer cult <laughs> army <laughs> which is a shame yeah. but not because that would right. be horrifying these astro military detachments are then known as brood brothers detachments and every unit in them has the regiment or military tempestus keyword or that has the regiment or military tempestus keyword must replace it in every instance on its data sheet with brood brothers. And if a unit does not have either of these keywords, it gains the brood brothers keyword. So for example, uh, like an ogren gains the brood brothers keyword. Didn't have it before. Now it does. They do not gain any of the detachment abilities listed in uh, Codex Estra Militarum, such as regimental doctrines. So you will not have Cadian brood brothers, Catechin brood brothers, etc. They, nor can they use any regiment-specific stratagems, orders, etc. Now, they do get access to the standard guard stratagems, and they do get access to the standard orders system. So your Brood Brothers guard in- infantry squads can first-rank fire, second-rank fire. Stuff like that. Furthermore, infantry models in these attachments increase their leadership characteristic by one, and they gain the unquestioning loyalty ability. They do not gain cult ambush, however. Your warlord cannot be from one of these detachments. You cannot give any relics to those characters. And in addition, any command benefits, i.e. the number of command points you get for taking these detachments, is halved rounded up. So if you take a brigade, if you take a battalion, you're only getting three command points instead of five. If you take a brigade, you're only getting 
five instead of, or is it 12 now? It's 12, right? It's 12 now, yeah. 12, so yeah. you get six instead of 12. Right. So you just take the the one CP ones because you still get one CP. Right. Or if you need right. like if you need a <laughs> shot of if you want to do a guard heavy one, you could take, you know, take a brigade and get six yeah. CP. You're you're just taking it yeah. as a you're taking it as part of your army, not as a CP battery though, which is great. Yeah, no, it's this is a it's a fantastic way to balance this feature. Which we, we, which, you know, we did not have before. But, it, you know, it's like you, it gives you a chance to have your toys and play with them, but keep it under control. And so I really do like that. Uh, and it makes sense they wouldn't have cult ambush because this is like a guard unit rolling in. They're not ambushed, but they're also not loyal to the Imperium. Although they still have the Imperium keyword, if that matters, which most of the time it won't. Uh, and because you're, uh, your warlord can't be from this. This also doesn't allow you to do things like um, the Imperial Assassin or the Assassin's Index in the new White Dwarf has a stratagem that lets you spend one CP if your if your warlord is Imperium to add an assassin to an existing detachment. Can't do that here because they can't be your warlord. So it's like they've kind of tried to catch any of the weird situations that could come up with a uh, guard detachment. Also, because they specified no relics, that means you don't have to worry about a uh, a Brood Brothers detachment with Kurov's Aquila or something like that. Yeah, I really yeah. appreciate that they spelled all of this out because I know from Index, where you had a version of being able to do this rules, it created all sorts of weird interactions that had to be FAQ'd or had questions come up about, well, can I take a Cadian detachment and do this? Can I take this and do this? Can I add this relic and I, I'm just glad that they went through and said, nope, this is how it works. We're spelling it all out. Deal with it. Yep. So uh, digging into the individual units in here, I don't want to hit like all the old ones necessarily because they haven't really changed since the index will kind of hit their, their role. And a couple of them have had some, ch from changes, but mostly we also want to hit the new units and there's a lot of new yeah. characters in here. They really expanded this yeah. army a lot, uh, especially in the character department. And some of these are HQs, some of these are elites, but it, it gives you a, a, a full range and a lot more flexibility in army building. Uh, so the key of this army is, is definitely the patriarch. You don't have to have a patriarch on your army. If you do, however, it has to be your warlord. And also each character can only appear once. If you are battleforged or match, it's it's a it's a match play role. Yeah, in match play, these characters can only appear once in a detachment. If you double up on detachments, you can have double doubled up characters, but uh, it's kind of like it's a it's like the Tau commander restriction, basically. Yeah. So you've got the patriarch, which is basically a psychic and close combat monster, basically yeah. an uber gene stealer. Uh, I, I'd say even better than a Broodlord from the Tyranids Codex. I mean, he is basically he's he's based off of of that. I mean, that's kind of the same like role that he fills, only more so because he's got more under more underlings, really. So, yeah, he is he's got. A, a little bit better uh, loadout of, of rules here. So. And he did gain an extra psychic power as well. 
He knows yes. two now instead of one. He still can only cast one, but that makes sense because they doubled the number of psychic powers they have in the book. So yeah. Uh, and then you've got the Magus, which is basically your cl- uh, your cult psyker, and uh, all these characters like. These two characters can have familiars, which you may have seen these models. They're the little bitty Gene Steeler looking models, which apparently they're not actually flesh and blood. They're like psychically generated. Yeah. The, yeah. It's kind of weird. <laughs> but yeah, they're, yeah, they're not actually little, little critters. Although they, they do have wounds, but they don't count for morale if they die. So you can lose right, the... Yeah. So, I mean, you can always take a couple as a blade of wounds, which is nice. Yeah. And uh, if you're in, if you're accompanied by any uh, familiars, you know, not only do they have... Let's see. Well, they don't actually have attacks anymore. They used to, but I don't uh, think they... They, they do. They, they, I mean, they have on their stat line, they have two attacks. Yeah. They okay. Yeah. Okay. So they just, line. but they don't. Okay. So they have a stat line. They just they don't have any like special weapons or anything. They're just normal little no, melee no. weapons. But, uh, but the main thing with them is, uh, if you are accompanied by any familiars once per game, you can try to manifest an additional psychic power. So if you want to get both of those psychic powers or a psychic power and smite off once per game, you can do that as long as you have a familiar around. So that that's yep. pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, the mages has access to those. There's the Primus, which is the uh, kind of the battle planner combat. He was kind of like a combat character. In, in the in the previous versions, he was very much the I am the master of cult ambush. Yes. And now he's okay. Because <laughs> now yeah. he just – he lets you re-roll wound rolls of one uh, for attacks made by units that have the cult ambush ability within six inches of him while they're targeting an enemy like when you set them up on the battlefield, you pick out a unit, and then anybody that has cult ambush that's within six inches of the Primus gets to re-roll wound rolls of one when targeting that unit. It's a very finicky particular ability. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 fairly specific. I mean, the the thing that he used to do. Obviously, since Cult Ambush has changed so drastically, like, it it can't be the same thing. But, like, there's stratagems now for doing the the sort of vague equivalent of modifying your Cult Ambush now instead of having your characters do that. Now, he does let you do, like, the captain thing of – well, he doesn't let you re-roll ones. He adds one to hit rolls if they're within six inches of them. So he's yeah. a combat – he's a force multiplier. And that's – a lot of this army is force multipliers. Yeah. Because the – with a few exceptions, the individual units tend to be not that impressive. But if you can – like, in the, and again, this was kind of how it was in 7th edition where you could stack – if you could stack auras, you could get – some just absolutely killer units, and that is still a thing you can kind of do with this. Yeah. Let's see, you've got the Acolyte Icon Ward, which is their Icon Bearer, um, lets you reroll morale tests, uh, lets you, gets you uh, six up feel no pain if you're within six inches of one, which is pretty handy. Right. And and also, since the... Uh Aberrants essentially already have six up feel no pain. It he actually improves their feel no pain. Yep. 
All right, now we're starting to get into new or at least newer stuff. Uh, so the Abominant was introduced in Tooth and Claw, the box set that came out last year that was Space Wolves versus Gene Steeler Cults. And so now he is actually printed in codex format. Um, and he is basically a really big aberrant. And I actually like the fluff description of him where it's like he's not re- he's not smart at all. But then eventually they can point him into combat and have him go beat on things. And then afterwards, to calm him down, they give him a toy to play with and he calms yep. down. And he's basically, it's like he's basically Lenny from Mice with Men or from Mice and Men. <laughs> I mean, he really yeah. kind of is. He wants to be a friend. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give you my sledgehammer. <laughs> and his sledgehammer is really nasty because. He's already str- he's base strength six. This power sledgehammer doubles that. It's AP minus three, D six damage that can never do less than three, <laughs> and yeah. uh, three attacks. Plus, he can do an extra attack with his. Or he can do a, his. He can have a familiar that attacks, or he can attack with rending claws instead. Yeah, and his, re- actually, his his the the reason. His familiar is built into his model. It is not a separate model, right? Which is which is why the familiar clause is a is like a weapon listing instead of a separate model, right? But then he's got a five up, feel no pain, and he heals D three wounds at the start of each of your turns. He is, he's a combat monster as well. So yeah, and and. Like I said, with that kind of damage output, granted, it's only three attacks, but he's got a three-up weapon skill, and he's wounding pretty much everything on twos or threes. And if he's got a unit of aberrants with him to take wounds with him, take wounds for him, because he is a character, so they can unquestioningly, un- unquestionable loyal, unquestioning loyalty him. Got to find a better way to phrase that. I- I almost wouldn't do that because unquestioning loyalty slays a model ah, instead true. of and and, mm-hmm. and the aberrants are multi wound models. So yeah, that's true. You you get more uh, more bang for your buck if it, if he has like little guys by him. Yeah. For that. But yeah, he him and a gang of aberrants will will get you a long way, and he improves aberrant hit roll or he makes a. Uh, Aberrants within six inches of him do two hits instead of one if they uh, if they roll a six to hit. So yeah. yeah, so I mean he can he can really get that damage output going, and they are no slouches in close combat anyway. And and he he himself has the aberrant keyword, so he, he would him. he would he would have uh, two hits on sixes as well. Yep. Um. And another uh, another thing about the unquestioning loyalty, back to that, is it is optional. It's not a compulsory thing. True. Which is good. Yeah, so you just check to see if you're within range of a unit, and then you can select one of those units and do it. You don't have to. So, yeah, yeah, you don't have – you're not going to necessarily chew through your units if you don't want to. Right. Moving up, we got the Jackal Alphas, which is our new bike sniper, which, yes. you know, yeah, so so they can, you know, as most snipers, they can target characters if they're not the closest. They do mortal wounds if they, they roll a six to, to wound. And the, the rifle itself is already 
AP minus two D three damage, which is pretty sweet. Yep. And you pick a uh, you can pick out a unit with it that's visible to you and within thirty six inches of the Alphas. And until the end of the shooting phase, you add one to hit rolls for all cult units within six inches of the Alphas tw- or twelve inches if they are bikers as well. So they c- again a, a force multiplier. And a, a pretty nasty shooter in their own right, and fast, yeah. 14 inches of yeah. movement. 14 inches of movement, a two-up ballistic skill. And minus, nice. one, and minus one to be hit in the shooting phase because they are good at biking. Yeah. Let's see. Acolyte hybrids, these are your close combat troops, and neophyte hybrids are your shooty troops. I would say the acolytes are better at close combat than the neophytes are at shooting, for the most part. <laughs> yeah. They have... They've got a lot of, of really interesting like options for for their close combat, including some some pretty heavy hitting stuff. Oh yeah, because like you've got the rock cutter, which can just kill a model outright if you manage to you roll a d six when you uh, when a non vehicle model suffers damage, and if you roll more than the wounds they have remaining, they die. Yep. Or the rock drill where you just keep rolling, and if you can keep rolling higher and higher, you just keep doing mortal wounds to them. So, yeah, I mean, they've got some really nasty, nasty weapons. Which is nice because I seem to recall the rock drill being not so great last edition. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like, why would you ever take that when you could take the rock cutter? And now it's like, I could see either way because, hey, a, you know, being able to do mortal wound output is always good. See, then we've got the uh, yeah the neophyte hybrids. The hybrids, the hybrids are are just good for being you know cheap dudes. They are cheap. You can get get a lot of them, and and they can rapid fire shoot. Yeah, I mean they they've got they're using auto guns. They lost the ability to take las guns. That's now been moved fully to the uh, Brood Brothers infantry squads. So right, yeah. Pretty much any of the the more like Astra Militarum specific stuff that used to be included in the Neophyte unit has been moved to the Brood Brothers squad. Like because Neophytes used to be able to take the the heavy weapons teams and mm-hmm. yeah, it was basically and, um, kind of a catch all squad that could be a guard squad, could be a mining crew, whatever you wanted to build out of it. Right now, they've kind of split those up into into two different units, which I actually kind of like. But they do still have access to like the heavy mining weapons, so they can take uh, mining lasers or seismic cannons, which are pretty decent. Right. Yeah. Um, and then, like, they can take an icon that uh, lets them reroll hit rolls of one during the fight phase. Right. Yeah, because, I mean, the mining laser is basically a LAS cannon. Strength 9, AP minus 3, uh, D3 damage. Not you know not as strong as a full LAS cannon on the damage output and half the range, but still, having a man-portable LAS cannon on a cheap unit is not bad. Yeah. And then, let's see, the seismic cannon uh, is basically a way to get, poss- you know, angle for some AP minus 4 wounds if you roll 6s to wound, but... I'd probably go mining laser if I was going to take a heavy. They can also take a heavy stubber if you just want number of shots for anti-infantry. Yeah. Uh, you've got your Brood Brothers Infantry Squad, which is basically a guard squad with uh, 
with Cult Ambush. Yeah. All right, getting into elites, we've got hybrid metamorphs, which are basically like the, I'd almost say like the veteran version of acolyte hybrids with crazier weapon options. Yeah, they're, they're, they're actually made from the, the same kit and you're just making them instead of with more human style, like handheld weapons, they actually have tyranid arms with scything talons and claws and all that crazy kind of stuff yeah and then aberrants which are the the harder hitting and i think of the two i would probably lean towards aberrants over hybrids yeah i mean aberrants are are kind of pricey they Um, are but i think they're worth it though i i do too like it if you want to go for like just number of bodies and you want something a little more hard hitting than, than acolytes, then metamorphs can kind of fall into that slot. But yeah, aberrants, I, I would, I would lean towards aberrants. Yeah. Cause, myself. Cause they, they've, you know, their strength five, they come stock with a heavy power hammer, which doubles their strength. It's basically a slightly weaker version of the hammer that the, uh, abominant has, but it's also got a fixed three damage, which is pretty nice. Yeah. And something else that they have and the abominant has that actually got improved over the last index is they have their bestial vigor, which used to be you just reduced the damage characteristic of any weapon that hit them by one to a minimum of one. Now they have that and have five up, feel no pain in addition. Right. Yeah. So they are, they are tough. Uh, they will put a hurt on something. Uh, these are the kinds of things you want to send after like, Oh look, there's a knight coming up. We'll just, Surround it with, you know, we'll send a unit of aberrants and an abomin against it. It'll be a dead knight. They'll, it'll, they'll break it. Right. The, and something new that was it, well, it was added in tooth and claw. Um, but they now have like a, a sergeant kind of equivalent. Ah, uh, yes. The a, hypermorph. A, the hypermorph who has an extra attack. Yeah. Cause he's got a, he's got a tail kind of like a, uh, uh, carnifex almost. Yep. Let's see. And then, then Pierce- he also oh, has the the option for that heavy improvised weapon, right? Which d- uh, doubles the number of attacks he has. Yes, <laughs> and also doubles his strength. So yeah, it's he's very effective. Yes. Uh, then we've got uh, pure strain gene stealers, which are basically gene stealers the way they are in the Tyranid Codex, with the addition of cult ambush and unquestioning loyalty. Yep. And and this is the, like one of the close combat. This and aberrants are the close combat units you see a lot. It's like yeah, yeah. You tend to see neophyte hybrids for cheap troop slot, you know, rather than taking acolytes. And then yeah, aberrants and pure strain gene stealers to to do the actual like heavy heavy hitting and assault. And they are good at it. I mean, we know how good gene stealers are. This is just more gene stealers that can deep strike. Let's see. Now we start getting into the new characters again. We've got the Clam of Us, which has to go for the worst name ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this is the guy. This is basically the uh, the DJ. Yep. The the hype master. Yep. <laughs> now his thing is um, units can't be set up as reinforcements within twelve inches of him. 
And in addition, at the start of any, if there's any enemy units within six inches of them, uh, on a, you roll a d6 for them, they take a mortal wound if they're within six inches, because he's just putting out so much noise and static that it's actually making their ears bleed. He's like the, the, uh, the announcer guy from My Hero. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then he also improves leadership if units within six inches of him, advance and charge rolls if they're for units within six inches of him. You know, he, again, it's that it's an aura buff. Plus, also being able to keep a, a larger bubble of you can't deep strike near me is very handy. So, not yeah. a bad, not a bad unit choice, relatively expensive. Absolutely crap at actually doing anything in combat, but as a support character, fantastic. Right. Let's see, you've got the Locust, which is the new bodyguard model that they have, which not only does he have Unquestioning Loyalty, he also has Unquestioning Bodyguard. Each time a a cult character model other than a Locust loses a wound within three inches of any Locusts, you select one of the Locusts to intercept that attack instead of using Unquestioning Loyalty, they do it on a two-up, so much like Savior Protocols. Uh, the character does not lose a wound, but the selected model suffers one mortal wound. On a one, the original model loses the wound as normal. So this, these are units that are definitely made to take hits for people. Yeah. They can also heroically intervene if they're within six inches of any enemy models that charge in. The model can move up to six inches when heroically intervening, and you can choose to move towards the nearest enemy character rather than the nearest enemy model. And they've got a five up and vulnerable save, and they always fight first. Yep, they're they're actually pretty cool. Yep, and they're uh, they're locust blades that they're armed with, and they have a hypermorph tail as well. But they're uh, locust blades, AP minus three, you know, one damage, but it becomes two damage if they charged, were charged, or heroically intervened, which is what they're made to do. So yep. Yeah, so no, they're they're pretty cool, and again, a relatively inexpensive elite slot with all the with cheap troops and all the elites that are available, and with some of the other things that are available in this army now, a brigade of just gene stealer cults is very possible. I think. Yeah, yeah. Plus, plus the the you know some additional like fast attack choices, which was something they were kind of a little lean on as well. Yes, yes, they definitely have that now. So all the spots are are available and with some, with some variety too, which is nice. Uh, let's see, the Sanctus, this is basically the cult assassin. In fact, they have a rule called a cult assassin. It can never be it can never have a warlord trait and uh there's a stratagem called a perfect ambush which we'll get to. They get to use this for free. It costs which is, zero command points for them, which is pretty sweet. Yeah. Uh, they have a camo cloak. Yep. Um, and then they have a, a built-in familiar. And then it, they basically have two loadouts. Uh, they can either be a sniper uh, with, you know, all your kind of standard sniper abilities, uh, strength for AP minus one, D3 damage, but then would also uh, cause perils on a psyker. So pretty nice, pretty nice. Or they can be uh, outfitted as close combat with the Sanctus Bio Dagger, uh, which it can make an additional attack with, and it's already got four attacks. 
this weapon always wounds on a two unless it's targeting a vehicle or Titanic unit. Uh, it's minus two AP and two damage. And with a weapon skill or ballistic skill of two, I mean, this is a... Yeah, you don't have access to Imperial Assassins, but you've got this. It's almost as good. Yep. Yeah, I was actually surprised because I had only seen the the model with with the dagger. Yeah, I was actually and, looking at and, that on the website, and, and uh, when I when I opened it up, I was like, "Oh, look! There's a sniper rifle here too." Yeah, I was looking at it on the GW website, and I'm like, "That." is actually a pretty clever way of doing it because that whole arm piece, you know, just slots in and it's, yeah, it's either the knife arm or it's the gun arm. And I'm like, that's, that's really sharp design. <laughs> yeah. I actually happen to have had a, a, uh, a, a guard body that had a camo cloak and a sniper rifle. And so I actually just converted him, popped the head off, put a gene sealer head on and, Added on a Gene Stealer familiar and boom, nice. another Sanctus. Also, I still love that this uh, familiar wears his own uh, night vision goggles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which does actually have a game benefit. You don't get cover against this model. Nice. Right. So, yeah, this does. You cannot hide from this model short of just being out of line of sight completely. Let's see. The character cavalcade continues as we get to the Keller Morph, who is the model that is only available in a kill team box right now. Yep. And he's Which the guy I broke down and bought. Yeah, well, it's a sweet looking model. <laughs> he, he is cool. Um, he since he's in the kill team box, he also comes in that like lighter gray plastic that that all the Gene Stealer cult kill team stuff comes in. Yep. And I like his fluff is that he's basically the big damn hero of the Gene Stealer cult revolution. Yeah. He, he's basically, he, he's taken the law into his own hands. He's the base. <laughs> yep. And so uh, he can, so he's a, he's armed with three pistols and a cultist knife. I mean, his pistols are 12 inch pistol two, strength four, AP minus one, two damage. Uh, but he can target temp, target characters, even if they're not the closest enemy model. And in addition, each time this model hits an enemy with a pistol weapon, which he's rolling six shots with those, because he's got three pistols doing two shots each. Anytime he hits with his ballistic skill of two, he can immediately make an additional hit roll against the target using the same weapon. So most of the time he's doing nine shots. Yeah. And if he kills any enemy models with his ranged weapons, then until the end of the phase... Reroll hit rolls of one for attacks made by friendly cult infantry units within six inches of him. So he makes, he can generate an aura just by killing a model, which is pretty nice. And a five up invuln save too, to keep him alive. Then next up is the Nexos, who is the guy that was planning the attack on Warhammer World with his little 3D display. Yeah. And he has only one ability of any note, but it is a good one. Uh, after this model has been set up on the battlefield, you select one of your ambush markers that is on the battlefield and remove it before setting it up again anywhere wholly within your deployment zone and more than 12 inches away from enemy, enemy models. So uh, he lets you shift around an ambush token, which is nice. 
In addition, if your army is battleforged, roll a d6 each time either player spends a command point to use a stratagem while any nexuses from your army are on the field. If it was a command point you spent and there's at least one primus and one nexus from your army on the battlefield, add one to the result. If it was a command point your opponent spent and there's at least one Clamavus and one Nexus from your army on the battlefield, add one to the result. In either case, if the roll is six or more, you immediately gain a command point. So this gives you a reason to take one or both of those other characters. Yep. And it's the one of the only ways you have command point regen in the army. So... I, again, it's kind of neat to see an army that has, I mean, we've seen armies that have some support characters, but they're usually more built around auras, which a lot of these are as well. But having characters that just improve your army in general, this is a much better form of CP that, uh, regen than like Nurgle has, for example. Cause, and, or Tyranids. Or Tyranids, <laughs> yeah. So no, this is, although, Technically, you could include this in a Tyranid detachment because they have the Tyranid faction keyword. Uh, true. Uh, next is the Biophagus, which is basically their answer to Fabius Bile, because he can yes. enhance aberrance to and give them either plus one strength, plus one toughness, or plus one attack. Uh, if they end up, if they're within an inch of the uh, Biophagus at the end of your movement phases. However, don't roll a one. Otherwise, the unit just loses model because the drugs went bad and it blew up. But if he has this familiar once per game, you can roll 2d3 on this chart that they have and get and then pick which ability you want to get. Um, of all the characters, he's probably I mean, all these characters are kind of gimmicky. He is probably the most gimmicky since he does yeah. only affect aberrants. Then again, aberrants are really good. Aberrants are really good, so he's not necessarily a bad add-on if you have have the points to spare. And the other thing is a lot of these characters, we haven't touched on point costs, but a lot of these characters are not terribly expensive. The Locust is 40, the Nexus is 50, the Sanctus is 55, the Biophagus is 35, and he can take an... Uh, familiar for 12. So, I mean, if you have 35 points to throw into your army, you can drop this guy in. If you're running aberrants, you might as well. Yeah. Now we're getting into fast attack. Uh, and again, they have new options here. The Achilles Ridge Runners, which are basically their fast gun jeeps. Yep. They're like, aesthetically, they're like little rock grinder truck, Goliath trucks. Yep. Um, uh, Go ahead. <laughs> and they aren't, but the stock armament is not bad. A heavy mining laser, which again is just a slightly shorter range LAS cannon, a pair of heavy stubbers, a flare launcher, which uh, gives them a six up feel no pain. And they can help bikes uh, move an extra six inches with their flare launcher. And it's got a scout move. And enemies, and if you take the uh, one of the upgrades on it, you can either increase the range of its ranged weapons by six if you take a spotter. If you take an auger, uh, units don't receive cover against it. So, I mean, this thing can be a very effective gun platform. Yep. And, and these, I, I haven't looked at the point costs of these, but I can't imagine they're super expensive either. Uh, not counting the weapon, they are 50 points base. The heavy mining laser is 25. The heavy stubbers are two, so we're at 79 and the flare launcher, which is under war gear, is five, so eighty-four points. 
84 for one of these. Eighty, yeah, eighty-four point stock. Um, it can also have instead of the mining laser, you could take a, a missile launcher or a heavy mortar. Uh, missile launcher is only fifteen points, so that'll that'll knock ten off of that. The heavy mortar is only eight points, and that can and the heavy mortar can target things that uh, it that aren't in line of sight. So you've got some decent options here. Yep. And then the Adeline Jackals are the new bike and quad unit. Yeah, the Wolf Quad comes with a heavy, like the quad has a heavy stubber, but you can replace it with a mining laser or an Adeline incinerator, which is a 12-inch range heavy D6 flamer. Um, and uh, the bikers themselves are armed with pistols. And they have their own weapons list. So they can take an auto, pist- auto gun, auto pistol, bolt pistol, cultist knife, uh, demolition charge, grenade launcher, power axe, power hammer, power pick, shotgun, or improvised weapon. You can load these guys up for shooting. You can load them up for assault. So, I mean, you've got, again, it's a nice, fast bike unit with uh, some really good uh, weaponry options. There's nothing not to like there. And much like their their alphas, they, they have the skilled outriders, which subtract one from hit rolls. Uh, that target them in the shoot, shooting phase. Yep. Uh, next up, you've got cult armored sentinels and cult scout sentinels. These are basically just guard sentinels with cult ambush. Otherwise, all the same uh, weapon options that you would see on the uh, on in the guard army. And yep. then we get to heavy support. There's the cult Lehman Rust, which doesn't have all the Lehman Rust variants, but it can have the battle cannon. The Eradicator Nova Cannon, the Exterminator Auto Cannon, or the Plasma Cannon, or I guess the Plasma Cannons are more for the uh, Sponsons. Uh, or yeah. So it can have the Battle Cannon, the Eradicator, the Exterminator, or the Vanquisher. Yep. So still, I mean, lots of options. And yes, it has Grinding Advance. It has Smoke Launchers. I mean, it has it does all the stuff that a Guard one had to have, plus you can ambush it. Yep. And then you've got a Brood Brothers Heavy Weapon Squad, which is basically a guard heavy weapon squad with all the same options that a, a guard wet squad would have. And then uh, the last the last one, we've got the Goliath Rock Grinder, which is basically their not Lehman Rust tank option. Guns aren't quite as good, but it's also much nastier in close combat. Yeah. And then their dedicated transport options, they have either the Goliath Truck, which can hold pretty much any... Gene Steeler cult, uh, any uh, any cult, specifically bracketed cult infantry. Uh, you can actually put a patriarch on it in the place of five models. <laughs> and then you've got the cult chimera, which is for uh, porting around your uh, Brood Brothers units. Yep. Uh, otherwise, again, just like a guard uh, chimera. And then finally, while they don't have a Lord of War, they do have a fortification, the Tectonic Frag Drill. Which is basically a giant drill on a uh, on a gantry. So it has a couple of rules of note. First off is underground ingress. Once per turn in their movement phase, one infantry or biker unit with the cult ambush ability can move off the battlefield if all of its models are on ground level and can move within an inch of this model. If it does, remove the selected unit from the battlefield at the end of your next movement phase. You've basically drilled a hole for them to pop up through and then they deep strike. Yep. An interesting way of of maybe, you know, shuffling stuff around on the battlefield, like, mid-game. Yeah. 
And then the other one is activate the drill. If a model from your army is on a tectonic frag drill at the end of your movement phase and there are no enemy models on it, you can activate the drill. If you do, roll first roll a d6 for every unit on ground level within three inches of the tip of this model's large drill. So don't get near the drill because on a six, the unit suffers d6 mortal wounds. Then roll a d6, adding one to the result for each other time the drill on this model has been activated during the battle. If the total is less than six, then you do seismic tremors. On a six or more, then seismic tremors and seismic quake results take place. Uh, the seismic quake can only take place once per battle, regardless of how many tectonic frag drills are on the battlefield. So most of the time you will just get seismic tremors, but then once per game you can get seismic quake. Seismic tremor says until the start of your next movement phase, Subtract tw- or subtract two from the charge rules made for units within 12 inches of this model. This does not apply to units that can fly. And the effects of multiple seismic tremors are not cumulative. Seismic quake, on the other hand. Draw a straight imaginary line one millimeter in thickness from any point on one battlefield edge to any point of another battlefield edge in such a way that it crosses this model. Roll a d6 for every unit this line crosses that, are, that is on ground level. Uh, do not roll for units that can fly. On a 4-up, that unit suffers d3 mortal wounds, and its move characteristic is halved until the end of its next movement phase. Jaws of the World Wolf! Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that sounds better than Jaws. Well, it is, but it, it isn't. You it, don't it, have it, control over when it, when it procs. Yeah, that, there's a lot of things that have to go right for that to go off. <laughs> I mean, you can kind of stack it a little bit if you have multiple drills. But, yeah, I mean, you're really... It's luck of the die roll at that point. Now, later in the game, you're pretty guaranteed to get it off. And it could be effective. It just depends on if it's going to help. But depending on how you draw the line, I mean, you can hit pretty much everything. Which, uh, like, being able to slow a knight down to half movement... Like, the D3 mortal wounds are nice against smaller units, but being able to cut a unit's movement in half can be very effective. Yeah. Although then you also have to hope that you rolled a four up when you hit the knight. <laughs> that, that, there, yeah, there's a, like you said, there's a lot of things that have to go it's, right for this to work. Right. It just seems like it's neat and fluffy, but I don't know how super effective it's going to be. Yeah. So now we get into the the rest of the rules for the army. We've already talked about uh, we've already talked cult ambush. We've talked unquestioning loyalty. Um, they do get all their gene stealer cult and brood brothers detachments. Troops units get basically objective secured. But then they have the cult creeds, which, like I said, your brood brothers units will never get, but everything else can. Uh, there are six cult creeds. So you have the Cult of the Four-Armed Emperor, which is basically like the original Gene Stealer cult, uh, as far as like the first Gene Stealer cult that the Empire was aware of. Uh, They are the kind that lie in wait, waiting to pop out, uh, and they are mostly a mining-based organization. In fact, they were kind of spawned from a mining guild family that got infected. Until the end of the first battle round, add one to advance and charge rolls made for units with the cult with this cult creed. Starting from the second battle round, if a unit with this cult creed is set up on the battlefield, then until the end of that turn, add one to advance and charge rolls made for that unit. Which so is funny when pe- stuff shows up. 
it it goes it goes faster a little faster a little faster <laughs> a little faster it, it's the there are some cases where something might get to advance if they were because most things that are going to be set up later in the game are going to come in at the end of your movement phase so it will really only affect their charges for the most part yeah it's it's a relatively it's an okay ability it's not great but they do actually get one of the better uh, stratagems and a pretty decent warlord trait as kind of trade-off. Popper Princes, these are a very zealous, we are all expendable, we are all part of this greater move, uh, this greater cause. Um, you can reroll hit rolls for attacks made with melee weapons by a unit with this cult creed in a turn in which it made a charge move, was charged, or performed a heroic intervention. Which, if you're going to go assault-based, this is a good one to have. Hive Cult. Uh, this is the uh, cult that is more militant than the others. One that's more likely to use Brood Brothers units and uh, steel guard assets. If a unit with this cult creed fails a morale test, have the number of models that flee rounding up. In addition, units with the cult creed can still shoot in a turn in which they fell back. But if they do so, you subtract one from their hit rolls. In the shooting phase. I like that. I like this version of the reducing the losses to morale. It It's not just a commissar ability stapled on. Yeah. I would like to see some of the others that do that, that have that ability change to this to make it more fair. And Bladed Cog. This is what happens when Gene Stealer cults infect a Mechanicus world. You end up with uh, Gene Stealer cult cyborgs. <laughs> yeah. So all yeah, models- the, the, this was the one that like kind of caught my fancy. <laughs> yeah, uh, all models with this cult creed have a six up invulnerable save. Models with this cult creed that already have an invulnerable save improve it by one. In addition, infantry models with this cult creed do not suffer the penalty to hit rolls for moving and shooting heavy weapons. Oh, nice. Yeah, <laughs> and considering yeah that improving your invulnerable saves by one. Um, your pure strain gene stealer now have a four up invulnerable save. Not nice. Yeah. That sounds painful to deal with. Yeah. To a maximum of, of three up, but a four up is a four up. will do just fine. Thank you. Four up is solid. Yeah. Uh, rusted claw. These are the nomads. This is where like a lot of your Adeline bikers and your Ridge runners that like the armies that lean heavily on that will go towards uh, when making saving throws, excluding invulnerable, so just armor saving throws. Uh, for a model with this cult creed, add one to the result. If the weapon being used to make the attack has an armor penetration of zero or minus one, so your last guns, most bolters, etc., you get plus one to your armor save. In addition, biker models from this cult creed, so obviously we're leaning on the bikes here, uh, biker models from this cult creed do not suffer the penalty for moving and shooting heavy weapons or for advancing and shooting assault weapons. So if you're going to make a biker heavy army, this is the one to use. Yep. And then finally, Twisted Helix, which is what happens when you combine mad mad scientists and medical technology with a gene stealer cult. You get uh, add one to the strength characteristic of models with this cult creed. In addition, add two to advance rolls for a unit with this cult creed. <laughs> Both those sound good. Uh, yeah, yes. uh, that one. That one with uh, aberrants and gene and pure strain gene stealers also sounds very nasty. Yep. Especially because pure strain gene stealers can advance and charge. So. Yep. So strength five, advancing and charging with an extra two inches. Yeah, those those gene stealers are going to be pretty nasty. 
And, and that takes us into into stratagems. This one's also interesting because they have a uh, tactical objective stratagem. If you're playing in a game with if you're playing in a game with with uh, tactical objectives and your army is led by a gene stealer cult warlord, you can spend a command point to have all your stratagems or all to have all your tactical objectives be hidden for the rest of the game. So your opponent has no idea what you're trying to do. Hmm. That's a cool fluff thing. I like that. Yeah, it, it yeah, it's one that's uh not going to come up all that often necessarily, but it's very fluffy and yeah, it's just kind of fun. I I really like that one. I'm not going to hit all of these cuz I don't want to just sit here and read stratagems. Um they came from below. Here's here's where we start getting into this uh cult ambush mar- like the ambush marker manipulation. Use the stratagem before you reveal an ambush marker. Select up to three units, excluding vehicles from your army that are set up in ambush. For each unit that you select, remove one ambush marker from the battlefield. The selected units are no longer set up in ambush and are instead set up underground as described in the cult ambush ability. And they have specified that this does allow you to go beyond the tactical reserves limit of half your army. Nice. Because technically the models, the units, even though they were never deployed on the table, because you placed a, an um, ambush marker for them, they started on the table. So you had over half your army on the table when you started. Uh, let's see. Brood Coven. This one lets you have uh, warlord traits. If you have a patriarch, a magus, and a primus. Uh, and actually, you, as long as you have either one or you have to have at least up to one magus, up to one primus. And if your warlord is a patriarch, uh, each unit you choose can have their own warlord trait. Does not make them count as the warlord except for that trait. But if you want to have mul- again multiple auras, multiple bubbles of uh, manipulation, this is this is a good way to get it. Meticulous uprising. Use the stratagem before you reveal an ambush marker. Move up to three of your ambush markers, up to twelve inches each. <laughs> they can't be moved within you know they still follow the same rules they have to be inside your deployment zone they can't be within nine inches of an enemy but your opponent has now uh ha- you know your opponent deployed knowing where your ambush markers are now no he doesn't that this is an uh why having a brigade or having uh, a couple of battalions of gene stealers ju- uh, of gene stealer cultists just to get as many command points as possible you are going to be wanting to do these tricks. Although because a lot of these are happening in the movement phase, because you're doing them when you reveal a token, you can only use them once per phase. So you can't like just shift everything around, Mm -hmm. but still being able to move the fact that it lets you move up to three. It's really good action economy because you're spending one command point to move three markers around, which is pretty nice. And again, I want to kind of focus on those because these are the ones that are going to affect the, the army the most. Although they, you know, they have some like they're they've got some for vehicle vehicles to automatically explode. Uh, they have ways for your characters to regen wounds. One that uh, basically makes your uh, pure strain genes. Uh, here's one that buffs your a unit of pure strain gene stealers. Gives them, you know, just improves their attacks. Cult reinforcements. Use the stratagem at the start of your movement phase. Select a gene stealer cult unit from your army that has the troops battlefield role. You can return up to D6 slain models to that unit. Always good. Uh, let's see. Scanner decoys. Use another one when you use this stratagem when you set up a unit from your army that has the cult ambush ability in ambush. So this is during deployment. So you can do this multiple times. 
Place four ambush markers from that unit instead of one. If you've used the stratagem, then when you reveal ambush markers, once there are no units from your army remaining in ambush, remove all your remaining ambush markers from the battlefield. Oh, wait, there is a limit. You can only use the stratagem once per battle. So even though yes. it happens outside of phase, they still locked it in. Because otherwise you could just have a ridiculous number of markers. <laughs> True. It's like, where's my but- army? It's everywhere. <laughs> Except it's not. <laughs> And now we get into some of the stuff that recreates the uh, Primus abilities, like a perfect ambush. This one costs three CP. Unless you use it on Sanctus, then it's zero. Uh, Use the stratagem in the movement phase immediately after you set up an infantry or biker unit from your army that has the cult ambush ability on the battlefield. That unit can either move D6 inches, even if it's arrived as reinforcements, or it can shoot with all its ranged weapons as if it were your shooting phase. Using this stratagem in your own turn does not prevent that unit from shooting in your shooting phase or making a charge move in the charge phase later in the turn. Which is <laughs> super good for the Sanctus. Oh, yeah. E- either build of the Sanctus, really. Yeah, because free sniper shot, yes, please. Free six inches of movement, yes, I will take that as well. Uh, telepathic summons. This one's kind of interesting. Use the stratagem at the start of your psychic phase. Select a cult psyker model from your army. That model cannot attempt to manifest any psychic powers. Instead, roll 3d6. You can add one new cult infantry or biker unit to your army if it has the cult ambush ability and its power rating is equal to or less than this roll. Uh, that unit is immediately set up on the battlefield anywhere more than 9 inches away from enemy models. It gives you chaos summoning with no downside. Mm. Yep. Now, Granted, you would still have to set aside points to pay for it in a match play. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, being able to, like, like, maybe I want some bikers to pop up. Or a unit of aberrance is seven. That's less than <laughs> the average roll on 3d6. If you roll a 14, you could have a 10-man unit of aberrance that you drop in. <laughs> so, now, is this is at happens in the psychic phase, which means you cannot use it also with perfect ambush because that happens in the movement phase. So... They, they've made sure that these don't get stacked in crazy and ridiculous ways. Uh, return to the Shadows. This basically lets you take an infantry or biker unit from Cult Ambush and pull them off the table. And then next movement at the end of your next movement phase, deep strike them again, which is pretty much what they had in 7th edition. Yep. Lying in Wait. This one costs 2 CP. Uh, use the stratagem when you set up a unit from your army that has the cult ambush ability as reinforcements. When setting up that unit, it can be set up anywhere on the battlefield that is more than three inches away from any enemy models, but the unit cannot make a charge move this turn. I mean, you don't, you won't drop, drop in a bunch of gene stealers, but if you want somebody to, to light a target up, you could do yeah. that. 20 man unit of, of neophytes with shotguns. Yeah. <laughs> and just give someone a real bad day. Uh, let's see. And now we get into, I'm going to skip the, they've got one for extra explosives on grenades. They have the, the standard, uh, relics stratagem. Then you get into the cult specific ones. Here's one that'll sound familiar. A plan generations in the making for three CP. Use the stratagem. This is a cult of the forearmed emperor stratagem. Remember, I said they had a pretty weak creed, but their stratagem was strong. They get, uh, the cabal of the black heart stratagem, basically. Yep. However, they have limit they in the uh, FAQ and errata, they limited it to once per game. They said they chose to do that rather than make it a 4 CP. They wanted to keep it less expensive but still limit the usage of it. 
And it does specify you have to have a cult of the forearmed emperor unit on the battlefield and cannot affect stratagems in the before the battle or during deployment phase. So, yes, it, uh, so it's it's pretty well well defined how to use this. Yes, thankfully. Yeah. Let's see. Hive cult gets chilling efficiency for two CP. Use the stratagem after a hive cult unit from your army has attacked an enemy unit in the shooting phase, and the attack resulted in the enemy unit losing one or more wounds. Add one to hit rolls for attacks made by other Hive Cult units, friendly Hive Cult units that target the same enemy unit in this phase. It's Tau-focused fire. Mm-hmm. They get Tau-focused fire as a stratagem, which is a really good stratagem. Uh, Bladed Cog gets overthrow the oppressors. Use the stratagem before a Bladed Cog unit, not counting Gene Stealer cults, or Gene Stealer units. So just like hybrids, neophytes, etc., from your army is selected to fight in the fight phase until the end of the phase. Each time you roll an unmodified hit roll of six, it explodes. You do another one. And if you're targeting Imperium units, you explode on a five or six. If you're attacking Mechanicus units, they explode on a four, five, or six. Hmm. <laughs> and this only costs one CP. But I can see why they wouldn't allow you to use it on Gene Sealers. That would be just wrong. Uh, Rusted Claw gets drive-by demolitions. They get plus one to hit and wound with uh, grenade weapons. But if they do that, then they get to move a second time. Oh, wow. There's that. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, use it before they shoot. It only affects your grenade weapons, but it doesn't say you can only fire grenade weapons. So you could just shoot your normal weapons, not take the benefit, and then get an extra 14 inches of movement. That doesn't suck. No. And remember, they're rusted claw, which means if you have assault weapons, you could have advanced during your first, during your movement phase, have no penalty to shoot. And then when you move again, the advance roll is already added to your movement score for the turn. So then just get the additional movement. Yeah. Yeah. You can fly across the board with that. Uh, Popper Princes get vengeance for the martyred. Uh, when an enemy unit destroys a Popper Princes character from the mo- model from your army, spend one CP for the remainder of the battle. Add one to hit rolls for attacks made by friendly Popper Princes models when they target the enemy unit that destroyed the character. Little conditional, but okay. It, yeah, I mean that's probably something that will happen. Like the, the we are talking about soft and squishies, so yes. And then finally, the Twisted Helix get monstrous bio-horrors for 3 CP. Use the stratagem at the end of the fight phase. Select a Twisted Helix aberrant unit from your army. That unit can immediately fight again. In addition, until the end of the turn, subtract one from the leadership characteristic of enemy units while they're within six inches of the unit. By the way, Twisted Helix aberrant is like the name of my next metal band. (laughs) (laughs) That would be a good one. That would be a really good one. And then uh, we'll hit the uh, Broodmind Discipline. Uh, so some of these powers will be familiar. Some of them aren't, uh, cause they're new, uh, mass hypnosis, warp charge seven, select an enemy unit within 18 inches invisible to the psyker until the next start of your next psychic phase. They can't fire overwatch. They fight last in the fight phase and they must subtract one from their hit rolls. That's pretty nice. Doesn't suck. Nope. Uh, mind control, uh, warp charge t- seven, uh, select an enemy unit within 12 inches of the Psyker, roll 3d6. If the score is less than the model's leadership characteristic, nothing happens. But if you equal or exceed it, uh, you can either make them shoot another enemy unit of your choice or make a single close combat attack against it as if it were part of your army. Models cannot attack themselves, but they can attack other members of their unit. <laughs> it's because you pick out an individual model 
So, yeah, like, oh, look at that uh, custode squad. Yeah, that guy in the middle, he's going to use his guardian spear on the other custodes around him. <laughs> Psionic Blast, uh, Warp Charge 5, this is basically their other smite. Uh, if manifested, select an enemy unit within 18 inches and visible to the Psyker, roll 2d6. If it's less than the highest leadership characteristic in the unit, they suffer one mortal wound, otherwise they suffer d3 mortal wounds. Then there's Mental Onslaught, and this one, I, I've seen some people complaining about this one because it, it is potentially stupid good. The, uh, it, it, it's a, a big luck thing, honestly. It is, a, it is a luck thing, but considering that a lot of your stuff has benefits to leadership and some of your abilities can lower enemy leadership, this could get nasty fast. So Mental Onslaught has a warp charge value of 6, so it's not hard to cast. You select an enemy unit within 18 inches visible to the Psyker. Each player rolls a D6 and adds their model's leadership characteristic to the result. If your score is higher, the model suffers a mortal wound. If the selected model is still alive, then you repeat the process. Each time, each player rolling a D6 and adding their respective leadership until either the selected model is destroyed or you fail to inflict one mortal wound by having a score higher than your opponent's. And they have specified in the FAQ... If the model like has a feel no pain ability and shrugs off the mortal wound, you still keep going because you did inflict it with luck with with luck and with a little bit of leadership manipulation, you could kill a knight with this, just keep rolling and rolling and rolling, or you could use it to like pick out a character or just like choose i mean there are some things that you wouldn't necessarily want to do, like orcs would be a bad choice for this one, yeah. But uh, but other stuff like you could you could tear through uh, like a guard unit or imagine a unit of cultists. Ooh, yeah. yeah, you'll just wipe a unit of cultists with this. Uh, psychic stimulus, uh, warp charge six. If manifested, select a friendly gene stealer cult unit within eighteen inches of the psyker. Until it started your next psychic phase, the unit can charge even if it advanced, though not if it fell back, and always fights first in the fight phase, even if they didn't charge. And then all the standard caveats of if another enemy unit has the, has the same ability. And then finally, Might from Beyond, Warp Charge 7. Uh, select a friendly Gene Stealer Cult Infantry or Biker unit within 18 inches of the Psyker. Add one to the strength and attacks characteristic of all models in that unit until the start of your next Psychic phase. So just imagine a uh, Twisted Helix Patriarch with Twisted Helix Gene Stealers with him. Casting Might from Beyond on the Gene Stealers. One extra attack, which they already get more attacks if there's more than 10 of them in the unit. And they already have plus one strength from their cult creeds. So now they're at plus additional strength. So now they're at strength six. Things are going to get murdered. Yeah. Or Twisted Helix Aberrant. Twisted Helix Aberrants would also be a very good choice for this one. Mm -hmm. And then you pop the monstrous bio horrors and have them fight a second time. Yeah. Yeah. That's with horrible. the extra attacks. Yep. Yay. And, and with the hypermorph who gets two attacks for every swing of his heavy improvised weapon. Yep. Warlord traits, the ones that are mostly going to matter are your cult-specific ones. Again, Four-Armed Emperor gets uh, probably the better one of the better ones once per battle. Uh, the uh, Warlord gets a reroll on hits on a hit roll, wound roll, or saving throw. Uh, but in addition, you get D3 extra command points at the start of the game, with, which considering some of the point manipulation or like the ambush marker manipulation uh, stratagems, 
an extra D3 command points will come in very handy. Yep. Uh, Hive Cult gets Hive Lord. Uh, reroll hit rolls of one for attacks made with ranged weapons within six inches of him. Uh, Bladed Cog, after deployment but before the first battle round begins, select one unit from your opponent's army. Uh, you can reroll wound rolls for attacks made by friendly Bladed Cog units while they're within six inches of your Warlord when targeting the selected unit. I never like abilities like this because it just, like... It's v- very, it's so very specific and requires you to be hovered around your warlord to get any real benefit. Although, because it doesn't only affect infantry units, I, well, no, it has to be bladed cog units, so it wouldn't work with, uh, brood brothers. So you couldn't stack, uh, like Lehman Rust tanks around you and get any benefit. Uh, rested claw, every time you roll an unmodified wound roll of six in the fight phase. For a friendly rusted cog unit within six inches of your warlord, the armor penetration increases by one. Okay, fine. This is actually a lot of these. I, I I'm looking at it now. I'm like, maybe the warlord, the base warlord traits are better. <laughs> and unlike a lot of armies, there are no named characters in here, so nobody is locked into a particular warlord trait. Popper princes add two to unquestionable loyalty rolls made when you fail saving rolls, fail saving throws for your warlord. So instead of doing it on fours, you're doing it on twos, which basically, again, makes it uh, save your protocols. Yeah, that that one's pretty nice. I actually, that, I like that one. That one's pretty good. And then uh, Twisted Helix gets Bioalchemist. Increase the damage characteristic of weapons used by your warlord by one, not counting relics. Uh, but then the generic ones, you've got one that uh, lets, let's see, first one is... Friendly cult infantry and biker units can heroically intervene within six inches of your warlord, even if they're not characters. That's actually pretty useful. Shadow Stalker, subtract one from hit rolls that target your warlord. Just all of them. Uh, Biomorph Adaptation, add one to their attacks, to your warlord's attacks and strength. Born Survivor, reduce any damage inflicted to your warlord by one to a minimum of one. Uh, five, Alien Majesty, add three inches to the range of your warlord's aura abilities. Which, with again, with a Patriarch, could be very nice. And then Preternatural Speed, your Warlord always fights first in the fight phase. You cannot select this Warlord trait for a Locust because they already have that ability. Right. But if you randomly select it, the Locust gets uh, Biomorph Adaptation instead, which is a Warlord plus one attack and strength. So <laughs> they even did catch, you know, put in a caveat of, yeah, if you roll this up and the character can't benefit from this, they get this one instead. Which I like that. That's a... Nice. This... So this book, the thing I like about it is it is very well constructed. You can tell they've gone through the care of making sure that the rules make sense, that they've, they've tried to really tighten up the rules interactions on it. It's one of the best written codexes they've had. Yeah, it definitely benefited from the going back after the FAQ and the beta rules came out and taking some extra time and getting it right. I mean, they still have had to apply some errata to it, so it's not perfect. But for the most part, like they've done a, they've better than any of the other codexes they've had. They've had done a really good job of, of yeah, making sure that hey, maybe we do need to reexamine this. Maybe we do need to make sure that these these abilities do or don't stack. I really don't want to read all the relics though, because there's a good like fourteen of them. Oof. Yeah. And, are there any? Know, are there any that stand out that? Let's yeah, see. Yeah. Amulet of the Void Worm. Add one to saving throws made for the bearer against ranged weapons. In addition, enemy units can't fire overwatch at the bearer. Ooh, so that's good. On a Patriarch, that that's could be nice. really nasty. 
Scourge of Distant Stars, add one to hit rolls for attacks made by the bear's melee weapons. In addition, each time a, an enemy model targets a bear with this melee with a melee weapon and your opponent rolls an unmodified hit roll of one, the attacker's unit suffers a mortal wound. Nice. Yeah. And then you get in like uh, faction-specific ones or unit-specific ones. Like there's one that is only for uh, units with sniper rifles. One for only units with familiars. One for only units with bone swords or locust blades. So yeah, I, I'd say Amulet of the Void Worm and Scourge of Distant Stars are probably the the two that immediately jump out to me. Then yeah, other the last bit is points. Most of the stuff in this army is very inexpensive and is actually even slightly cheaper than it was in the index. Yep. But yeah, this this is an army. I mean, and it fits fluff wise. This is an army. It's not quite, I wouldn't exactly call it a horde army, but it is an army that thrives on numbers. Although I think it's going to be more numbers of units rather than necessarily numbers of bodies in the units. With a couple of exceptions, uh, big blobs of gene stealers are always better. And uh, although some of them, some of them will get a bit expensive because like, you know, aberrants, not including their war gear, which... Their uh, power hammers or the heavy power hammers and picks, those get pretty expensive. Like aberrants can get up to like almost 40 points or so a model. So they'll add up really fast. But like your base on uh, neophyte hybrids are five points a model. Your Brood Brothers infantry squad is four points a model. So you can, you, you can fill in your troop slots pretty cheap. You can fill in your elite slots with some cheap characters that have pretty good buffs. Your HQs even aren't amazingly expensive. The Patriarch is 125 points. And that's just just stock. So like your that's your most like your most expensive unit is that or a uh, a cult Lehman Russ is probably your most expensive unit just because you've got to buy the guns for it. Yeah. Cuz like, yeah. But that's like 122 plus the battle cannon plus any spawns and weapons that you put on it. But between this and having access to the pretty much the entirety of the guard codex, plus having access to the entirety of the Tyranid codex, you can still run Tyranids alongside these because they share a uh, you know they share a faction keyword that isn't blocked by Battle Brothers. Yep. And, and I think which one is a is a better choice is is really up to taste. What do you want to add in? But at the same time, I think this is an army that is theoretically capable of running solo now, too. Yes, it, it is much better uh, suited for for actually just being an army by itself and having some differences uh, in, you know, choices in how you build it. Yes. Because, like, they could run as an army before, but... The limited number of units that they have to choose from means that they all pretty much look the same. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah, lots, just a lot more variability. And let's not forget, this army also has two specialist attachments in Vigilus, which stack will stack very neatly with the other things. You know, the, none of this will be like particular sub cult specific because when vigilance came out, we didn't have access to the cult creeds. So like the anointed throng, if you want to make uh, your aberrants and abominates even better, you've got a specialist attachment for that. That opens up an improved sledgehammer for the abominant or uh, picking a, uh, at the start of the fight phase, 
you pick a uh, aberrant and they can when that model would be slain the model's not removed but gets to fight so there's one where you could stack it with unquestioning loyalty yeah because it's uh, two CP, you target the unit at the fight phase, and then anytime a model in the unit is slain, it can you just leave it on the table, then fight with it, and then remove it. So, I mean, there's that, or there's the Deliverance Brood Surge, which improves your Icon Wards, Neophyte Hybrids, Acolyte Hybrids, and Goliath Trucks, which basically increases wound rolls during the fight phase for a unit that charged, or uh, lets your trucks uh, disembark people after the truck moved. And just the chance that the people falling off the truck may die. But you've got, you know, having access to these stacks nicely on top of the rest of the codex. I have not had a chance to play or really see a Gene Steeler Cult army in action yet. So I'm curious to see how these are actually going to play out. Yep, I have not gotten a chance to play with them yet either. Um, I've managed to get a number of the... I picked up all the new characters... And then, like, a, a a unit of the bikes, I've put together most of them. I've got a couple left that I still need to put together. But uh, I'm looking forward to, to using these guys. Yeah, and I've, I, I have looked at a, at a couple of lists. And, yeah, you see uh, use of, like, Twisted Helix Aberrants, use of uh, Rusted Claw Bikes and Ridge Runners. I mean, uh, Rusted Claw lends itself very well to an Outrider Detachment. It's very, you can build a, a relatively inexpensive core of a battalion that you can just add whatever you want onto it. Uh, or you could build a, a, a vanguard detachment around um, Twisted Helix, for example. You could have an Abominant as your HQ and then um, a Biologist as you, in your elite slot and then. Or and one of your elite slots, and then a couple of units of aberrants. I mean, there's there's lots of ways things can be slotted into this. Uh, do keep in mind that most of your R abilities are creed specific, so you won't get a lot of overlap. But that's true for a lot of armies, so that's not really. If you're already looking at mi- doing mixed creeds, that's not really a, a restriction. You're already used to that. But yeah. but this is an army that's going to play just because of how they've redone cult ambush and because of the stratagems they have available. It's really going to play it's it's gonna play very differently than it did before as, as far as your tactics. You're you're not you're not necessarily banking on those uh surprise good cult ambush rolls, but you're also playing the game of you get get to play completely reactionary to what your opponent does, at least in the early stages of the game, and you get you get to uh build your strategy as a way to respond to them. And I think that is something that is is a set of tricks that most other armies can't pull off in this game, just because of some of the restrictions of like tactical reserves and having to keep half the stuff on the table, and uh, being able to kind of have an army that breaks those rules, sort of, uh, is is really interesting. And I'm looking forward to seeing what people do with this army. Every game against them is like. I don't know if there's a standard like you you can't kind of go into this with a standard battle plan of well when I when I face gene stealer cults I'm going to do X because I don't get to choose what I do X uh, and again this is an army where if you're the gene stealer cult player you probably want to go second which is also very different than most armies. Yeah. Th- this army doesn't really behoove you to going first i mean th- you do get some advantage in that your opponent has to mostly deploy against you blind unless you bring in a guard element 
or a Tyranid element, but then they only get to see that part. So it's, I can picture this in my mind, but I'm looking forward to seeing it on the tabletop and seeing what happens with it. And I think that about wraps up our, uh, our Gene Stealer Cult review. Again, we look forward to seeing it on the table. Uh, so, uh, we'll move on now to, uh, a hobby progress to wrap up the show. I have almost finished the eight. I just have to, or seven of the eight. I need to get, uh, I need to get a broadside for Oblatai 90. But otherwise, I have seven of the eight completed, other than sealing them and adding tufts to their bases. And I'm really happy with how they turned out, especially considering, um, this set was, some of these were, models I put together a couple of years ago and I looking at them, I realized, Oh look, there's entire like mold line issues that I didn't note. Or the riptide I have is one that I got at a swap meet at iron halo a couple of years ago and have, it was already red and gray, but it wasn't the right red and gray. It was like orange and gray. So I had to do a, but I didn't want to strip the whole thing. So I had to repaint it. Um, I had to replace the, uh, the shield on it. I had to reset some of the magnets. I didn't reset all of them, but I had to like resync, uh, the magnet on the, uh, ion accelerator so they would actually sit on the arm properly. So I had to do a little bit of surgery to it while it was still painted. So again, I couldn't dismantle it and put it back together, but I think I did a pretty good job of rehabilitating it. So I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with that. And once I get them sealed this weekend, I get to move on to painting Kevin's Townar and finishing that up. Which I appreciate. I'm glad to do it. It's a, it's a fun model to paint. So, Kevin, you're up next. Uh, I, after doing my frantic, frantic, frantic painting to get everything ready for LVO, uh, I haven't worked on any models since then. Uh, what I have done is I've started the frantic, frantic painting of getting terrain ready for Midwest Conquest. So Yay. there's a bunch of rivers that I've painted. Um, I've got a bunch of tokens and stuff. I've got stuff that's 3D printing right now in the other room that uh, when it's done, I'm going to start painting. Um, I've got buildings to, to at least slap a coat of paint on to make them look a little more presentable. But uh, I think it's all starting to come together. Awesome. Dennis, you've been working on Custodes. Yeah, this is where I get to be like, I, I don't like Kevin for pointing out all the new custode stuff to me. It's I mean, I, they're not, so good. They do look so good. And that's what I've always loved about custodes is they look so good. So um, I will be starting on what I'm nicknaming Project Orion. <laughs> and why, why did you come up with that name? Well, I, I okay. Well, I had a birthday during the last month and stuff. So I had some birthday money. And so I said, well, hey, I'm going down to Dallas soon. birthday money. Not that much, no. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to Dallas soon. I have enough to buy, like, some custodes and maybe the Dreadnought or something. And so I go to the Citadel. They're sold out of custodes. The only things they had were some upgrade sprues and an Orion. <laughs> so I said, well, this must be fate. Fine. Well, not, yeah, it's like, I'm not going away empty handed. <laughs> well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to not spend the money. <laughs> so yeah, I, I spent more than I had planned, but still under a car. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is true. Only four fifths of a car. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm going to work on getting that together. And then if we ever get any warm weather, uh, maybe primed and then, um, 
start painting. I, I really would like to get onto that those parts, but as Rob said, with all the snow and everything, and then two putts around with that, I then a couple weeks later, or like actually last week, um, I went ahead and picked up the um, Flamethrower Custode Terminators from Forge World and the um, Guardian Spear Dreadnought, so that way I'll have stuff to go with uh, kind of a revised Custodes army. And once again, all these models look fabulous. And yeah, the Custodes with the flamethrowers were the ones I that caught my eye first. So I'm, I was thrilled to like be able to finally order them when they were in stock on the Forge World site. But the Dreadnought, I will say, I love and hate it at the same time. And that's because, oh my gosh, it is so superposable. But... Oh my gosh, you have to know how to pose it yourself because as I kind of was telling these guys earlier, the arm, five pieces for just one arm. Oh yeah. Because you got the the shoulder, the upper arm, the elbow, the forearm, and the hand. So it's like so much. And they do that so that way you can put the arm in whatever position you want. But trying to dry fit and those things together, I know Kevin, you told me after the fact I should use like blue tack to kind of stick and plan things. Mm-hmm. Which I didn't, so I, I have a very static, stoic pose on my Dreadnought because I was very unoriginal in how I could fit them together and try and, yeah. But no, I love the fact that it is so posable, but I hate the fact that I'm not good at posing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and once again, I love on the arms. I was like, okay, well, I'm, which weapon am I going to pick? I don't have to pick. Inside the, the wrist mounts and all of the little wrist-mounted weapons are little holes that are just deep enough and perfect size for a little magnet. And I love that Forge World does that. If you have options, they've got those option ability for you to magnetize those options. Well, if you're going to pay Forge World prices, you better damn well be able to make everything <laughs> out of the kit. <laughs> yeah, I would kind of agree with that. <laughs> but no, so, so Custodes have got me over my... I'm stuck on trying to cut off shoulder pads on these <laughs> guys for Death Watch because I, I forget how long it's been since I kind of had that project. And it just, I think cutting the shoulder pads just wore me out. And I just wanted to put stuff together. So I got past that by moving to a different faction for a little bit. I still need to go cut shoulder pads off someday, but not today or next month. So that is definitely what my, my big progress has been. And, of course, I, as I've already said, put together a bunch of uh, Gene Sealer cult characters. I, I've got the Keller Morph and the Clam of Us and the two Sanctuses that I made and a Locus and and the, Ma- the new Magus. All of those put together. Um, I still have a, the Biophagus and the Nexus and the Jackal Alphas and a unit of the Jackals to put together. And I still have never figured out what color scheme I'm even going to use for my Gene Stealer Colts yet, so... Purple. <laughs> That's my vote. <laughs> yeah, you could do like Rob did with Sisters, just put it up for a vote. Yeah, <laughs> I could. I could. I I really kind of want to. I'll probably come up with some 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 options and then yeah, put up maybe put it up for a vote because I I want it somehow to be at least related to you know my Tyranid paint scheme. So that's a good point. 
that's no. that's all I've gotten done. All right. Well, I think that wraps us up for episode 191. Can you believe we've done 191 of these things? Oh my. Wow. Nine yeah. more until we hit 200, which is another big round number. Yes, it is. But uh, until next episode, I'm Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. Good night, good gaming, and look to the stars for the Great Ascension. Preferred Enemies is an Undergopher Radio production and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharelike 3.0 Unported License. Our theme music is Metal Slug 2 Super Vehicle 001-2, No Need to Reload, originally by Takushi Hayamuda and remixed by Roataka, courtesy of OC Remix. It can be found at ocremix.com.